Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. <laughs> From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. I got a room at my house that has artifacts on the wall. It's the best way I can put it. My dad played some minor league baseball, I played for the Durham Bulls. I got one of his jerseys on the wall framed. Got one of his Louisville Slugger bats on the wall. Had him autograph it. My grandfather uh, did some real estate. He had this wooden sign that would hang outside his office. Had his name on it. I, I put that up. On, you know, it's hanging from the ceiling in the room. I've got, uh, I've got you know, Anna was a uh, little known fact. Anna was crowned Miss American Teen when she was uh, in high school or maybe just entering high school. Got a picture in her sash on the wall. Because I'm nostalgic. That's just how I roll, okay? My kids go in there, and it's like a museum. I had a friend visit one time. He didn't say anything. He just walked into the room. He saw the baseball cards. He saw the baseballs. He saw a coconut for no reason uh, sitting on a stand like it was a football. And uh, he kind of looked around the room, and he said, oh, you're nostalgic. That's all he said. Well, today's show is nostalgic. Um, there are going to be a couple of guests on today's show that I don't know if they're going to do interviews like this for for a lot longer. And I, I frankly don't think both of them would be in the same place on the same radio show anywhere else in the country, um, you know, today or ever. Like, uh, I think it's really special to have a couple of guests that we're going to have on the show today. I'm super excited about talking with John Robinson, the longtime USC coach. He did two tours at USC. We've got USC and UCLA playing on Saturday, tomorrow in a big football game at the Rose Bowl. John Robinson's been part of those. I want to ask him his memories of those rivalry games. He coached in the NFL. People don't know this, but John Robinson attended the University of Oregon. He was a, a wide receiver on the 1958 Rose Bowl team that Oregon played on and uh, played against Ohio State in, and John Robinson was on that team, and he later became an assistant coach on Jerry Fry's coaching staff, and then himself went on to coach at USC and then, frankly, became the head coach of USC in 1976. Why is that important? Well, uh, it's important because John Robinson's very first game as a coach, he got his ass kicked, and much in the same way that Dan Lanning did at the University of Oregon, except it was Missouri that kicked John Robinson's teeth in and... I think people at USC were probably wondering would they ever win another football game and had, did they make a mistake in promoting John Robinson. And there were a lot of questions swirling. John Robinson, though, he righted the ship, so to speak, and ended up going to the Rose Bowl in that first season. Wouldn't it be something if Dan Lanning and his team could win tomorrow against Utah at Autzen Stadium and then pivot right into a uh, into a berth in the ch conference championship game and maybe a Rose Bowl. So keep an eye on that, and uh, we'll talk to John Robinson about it coming up. 
uh, here later in the 3 o'clock hour. The other nostalgic guest that I'm having on today is uh, the guy we talked about yesterday, Joe Starkey. I wanted to have Joe Starkey on the show. And maybe it's just the Bay Area kid in me. I grew up listening to Joe Starkey on the radio. He was the Cal Radio play-by-play broadcaster. He still is. He was the 49ers radio play-by-play broadcaster for years and years. And Joe Starkey was the guy in 1982 when the band was on the field, so to speak, who was on the call. And we're going to talk with Joe Starkey coming up at 4 o'clock about, you know, making that call and what went into that. And, you know, and I, I got to say something, you know, when I first started doing this radio show, oh, like 2007-ish, I think, I don't know, I, I didn't know what I was doing, all right? And even before that, when I would do like one-hour radio appearances on other shows, I was barely, I barely was cognizant of what I was supposed to be doing. My background was not in radio. My background was in print journalism and writing. I was an English literature major in college. I had played sports in college, and I was around sports my whole life. But I didn't know sort of the blocking and tackling of, you know, how radio was supposed to sound and why it was that, you know, one person show, you know, they said, oh, and a one person show with built around one person doesn't work. And and so I heard all these things and I kind of just went like, look, I don't have that traditional background. And in some weird way, I think it benefited me. Joe Starkey's got a different background, too. I'm going to ask him about it. You're going to be fascinated by it. But it gives hope to anybody out there who's listening who might say, you know what, one day I'd like to be a broadcaster. Because Joe Starkey said that himself years and years and years ago. We'll talk about that coming up with Joe Starkey. Also, um, it's interesting that you know he was in his eighth season in 1982 as a play-by-play broadcaster. And I kind of, like, when I hear that, and I don't know if you have heard sort of pieces of the big play. I'm just going to play a cut of it. Oh, my God! The most amazing, sensational, dramatic, heartrending, exciting, thrilling finish in the history of college football, California. What the big game. Oh. Joe Starkey makes that call in his eighth year. I want to ask him coming up if the same circumstances, that wild play by Cal, all the laterals, uh, if that same play had happened, you know, in year one or two, does he make the same call? Is he prepared to do it? Because I have thought many, many times, like, you know, as I, you know, not just in in this job as a radio uh, broadcaster and a radio show host, but in my job as a, as a writer, I have uh, on several occasions encountered stories where I was just grateful, and maybe you relate to this in whatever profession or industry that you're in, I was grateful that I had years and years and years of experience when I encountered the story. Brenda Tracy comes to mind. You know, she was um, gang raped by four football players. Uh, two of them were university, or Oregon State University football players in 1998. Um, you know, I encounter her story deep in my career after I had 20 years experience writing and reporting. And I wouldn't have been ready to write that story in year two, year three, year four at a smaller newspaper with less experience. Like I've looked back and gone, gosh, I'm glad that I had the experience that I had at the time that I had it because I can remember 
being a young reporter, first starting out years and years ago, 1995, 1996, making a lot of mistakes. And I'm not talking about misspelling things. I'm just talking about news judgment, knowing uh, you know what's a story, what's not a story, knowing how to approach the story, getting into a, a delicate, tricky topic. Like There's just things that you can relate with, I'm sure, whether you're a machinist or a law enforcement officer or a nurse or even if you're a mom or dad out there listening to this, there's things that you can relate to that if you have done something for any extended period of time, and granted, I've got three daughters. I'm a better dad on daughter number three. Like, if you know, as a parent, you don't have that opportunity to go, hey, I need more time with this. Your kids come when they come. But I think that, you know, I, there were times in my career where I looked and I said, I'm just better equipped to handle this now than I would have been in year two, three, or four. I've done this for a decade, or I've done this for 15 years, or I've covered the Big Ten as a beat reporter, or I've covered uh, you know, the NFL or Major League Baseball. I'm well-equipped. Like Even when I got to the Blazers locker room in December of 2002, and it was a mess, and it was Rasheed Wallace, and it was Bonzi Wells, and it was a registered sex offender named Reuben Patterson in the locker room, people were like, oh, you know, this team, it's such a mess, it's such chaos. I had just come from covering the NFL. Do you remember the Sharpie, Terrell Owens, Barry Bonds, the cream and the clear? Bonds had just hit a million home runs in a season. I had covered before that Jerry Tarkanian, who had a locker room that was an absolute mess. I walked into the Blazers locker room and I said, hey, uh, I've seen this before. I've seen more evolved trouble than this in the locker room. And I, and I was grateful that I had that life experience. And maybe you out there, whether you're a realtor who's in like your 15th year of doing business and you're going, hey, people keep saying there's a recession and the rates are rising. You've seen some stuff. You know that you can withstand it. Whether you're in the home improvement space and you go, hey, you know, I know what's going on. I, I sort of understand the flow of business and you're just better equipped to do your job. Joe Starkey's in year number eight when John Elway and Stanford kicked that field goal to go up 20 to 19 and Stanford... The legend goes, and i got to ask Starkey about this, the legend goes that Stanford's coaches were arguing on the sideline before the field goal kick on how far down should they let the clock run before they kick the field goal. You talk about things that went right or wrong for Cal, and I don't know if you know the circumstances. You know, Cal is trailing 20-19 to 19 in this game. Stanford has just kicked a field goal to go ahead. John Elway's celebrating the other sideline. But Stanford left four seconds on the clock. Stanford also got a penalty for excessive celebration on the uh, field goal attempt. And so Stanford was kicking off from their own 25. And I keep thinking about that. They gave Cal a short field. They gave Cal four seconds. That's little stuff. I kind of wonder about the Stanford coaching staff at the time. Like, you know, in what year were they? Were they not equipped to sort of recognize that, hey, you know, you don't want to leave any time for the opposition to uh, you know, to have to kick the ball off and squib it or whatnot. But I think I think about that stuff all the time, and you know, I, maybe you can relate to that in your job. We got a great show today. It's a little nostalgic. We're also going to dive deep on the Pac-12 games of the weekend. Uh, we'll talk about Oregon and Utah. Why coaches specifically are afraid to talk about injuries. I learned some things today from the Pac-12 headquarters about the the possibility of implementing an injury report. The Pac-12 is exploring it, they say, but uh, not willing to really go on the record and say that this is actually something on the table. We'll talk about why that is, what are the complications of that, why it matters. I talked to Jay Cornegay, who runs 
the largest sports book in America. They run a sports book that spans six states. And it used to be the Westgate Superbook just in Vegas. Now it's an entire operation. They're in six states. They're about to go into California. I called him up this morning. I said, hey, how do you set a line when you don't know who's going to play quarterback? What are you guys looking for? The stuff he told me was fascinating, was interesting. Again, a guy who's done this for 20, 25 years and knows what the hell he's doing. But I come back to Joe Starkey or I come to John Robinson and I tell you, you can learn things from these people who have done it. And I don't care if we're talking about coaching football or broadcasting games or setting a line on a, on a game. I think if we pay attention to people who have been at it a long time, we can save ourselves a lot of trouble. Great show today. We'll kick it off next by talking about the injuries and why coaches don't want to talk about them. Big Pac-12 weekend. John Robinson coming up later this hour. Joe Starkey at 4 o'clock. Be here for those two interviews. Make an appointment there. In the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Josh Newman of the Salt Lake Tribune and get the latest on Kyle Whittingham and the Utes. You got the BFT statewide. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. John Robinson coming up uh, 3.30 or so. Joe Starkey will be with us at 4 o'clock, legendary Cal broadcaster. Utah Beat reporter Josh Newman, uh, he'll be in the 5 o'clock hour, so we got a whole bunch of, uh, whole bunch of guests on today's show. Uh, big show today. Uh, Judah Newby, uh, you guys excited? I'm a little nostalgic, and maybe it's just me. I love being nostalgic. Yeah, it's great. Joe Starkey, I'm a huge fan of. Got to meet him for the first time at the Autzen press box when Cal visited Oregon a few years ago. The game got out of hand, but I remember I got to go meet Joe Starkey. So I went to his booth. I, I met him for the first time, and I said, what's one piece of advice you can give to a aspiring broadcaster, especially a play-by-play guy? And he just looked at me, and maybe it was because the game got so out of hand, but he looked at me and he said, son, always prepare for the blowout. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget that. I was like, that's a good piece of advice. Over-prepare. Prepare for the blowout so you don't run out of things to say when you're losing by 28 points. You know what's funny is I used to be, you know, when I first started in my career, I was working at a small community newspaper. I was uh, like 25 years old, and I would go to Candlestick Park occasionally to go see uh, a 49er game on a weekend. It was kind of a treat because, you know, you're covering Little League games during the week. You're putting out the paper, and they'd say, okay, who wants to go to the Niner game on Sunday? And you'd go, and then, you know, you'd have to work it, but at least you'd be in the press box, and you know. And I remember being around and seeing Joe Starkey in the press box, and I was so shy, and I was so intimidated, I wouldn't say anything to him. And so I, I kicked myself because I, I think, gosh, I, I should have been networking. I should have been doing what you were doing, going up and talking to the guy, you know. I think it worked out all right for you. I don't know. <laughs> Could have been somebody. Steven, are you nostalgic? Uh yeah, definitely. I you know, I don't know. I'm not you know, I'm not a huge uh like announcer guy because I definitely didn't start in this business. I'm still relatively new. Uh but of course everyone knows the uh the Cal Stanford band on the field call. So yeah, I'm excited to listen to that interview. And yeah, I mean nostalgic this is great. I love going back and uh you know, that's when I was at my peak, right? Peak athleticism, making great plays is great. <laughs> I love it. Uh, guys, let's talk about the games coming up this weekend. Let's start with that USC-UCLA game. I had friends today who were reaching out to me. They maybe or maybe not gambling on that game. 
who keep asking me what I think, how, how strongly do I feel about my pick, because my pick is UCLA 40, USC 37. That means the underdog UCLA, the home underdog, uh, they're getting two and a half points in this game. It, they win the game outright. Uh, I believe they're better. You know, how good do I feel about it? Yeah, I feel pretty good about it. It's not like my lock pick of the week, but I just think they're a little better, and I'm excusing their absence last week against Arizona. Guys, what do you think happens in that USC-UCLA rivalry game? Yeah, I think you're right on. I think UCLA is going to win this game. And USC, they've played pretty well all season long, a little above expectations for your for me, definitely, uh, and I think that luck's going to run out. I'm with you. I think UCLA overlooked Arizona looking forward to this game uh, against USC coming up because they still hold their destiny, right? If they beat USC, they still have a chance to get to the Pac-12 title game. So I think it's going to be a tough spot for USC to come in and uh, just score with UCLA. I think UCLA's offense is going to be going. Uh, Charbonnet, the running back, has been uh, he's been limited, I would say, the last few games. Uh, he played against Arizona, did not play against Arizona State, so I think he's going to be ready to go. Uh, and Chip Kelly wants to win this game, really uh, you know, put a, put a stamp on this season, which has been a very successful one for UCLA. So I like UCLA in the game. Yeah, as long as USC doesn't score at will, I like UCLA. Now, obviously, USC is very good offensively. How much does Travis Dye's absence impact them is the question. I think UCLA wins, though. So all the way around, I think it's a good day for the Bruins. It's kind of a narrative play as well, though, for me, too. I just think UCLA is going to find a way to get to Vegas. Uh, and Arizona was a blip on the radar. So I like UCLA to win outright on the field. I keep looking at USC's schedule, and, you know, they beat Colorado last week. They ran it up on Colorado. They beat Cal the week before. They beat Arizona 45-37 uh, on October 29th. I mean, there's a common opponent, but Arizona was in this brutal stretch where they were playing Oregon and Utah and USC and UCLA and Washington back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back. And so I, I, I kind of am looking at Arizona going, okay, were they just having a bad night? I saw USC in person. On October 15th, when they played at Utah, they looked really good on offense, really suspect on defense. They gave up 43 points to Utah and lost the game 43-42. It's their only loss of the year. But I'm looking for what their best win is. I kind of feel like it was the road win at Oregon State, like, you know, early in the year, their their second conference game. Other than that, it's it's been less than impressive to me. And, again, they do not play Washington. They do not play Oregon. I think they had the easiest path to get here with one loss, and they took advantage of that. So I'm, I'm, I'm betting that UCLA has just had enough of hearing about USC and that they're just a little more complete. I agree with you. I think Oregon State is by far USC's best victory of the season so far. So you know you can say that USC's had a good year, like I just said, but they really haven't been, uh, you know really challenged a lot this season. They've been in a lot of close games lately. I think the Travis Dye injury is going to be a big uh, missing point for USC. I know they're yeah. going to you know replace him with other five-star athletes and five-star running backs, but Travis Dye is one of those guys that you know he gets four or five yards a carry for USC, and he's really a solidifying piece to that offense. I think it's going to be going to be a miss with that, uh, him gone. So I, I agree. I think UCLA is a spot for them to get going and really you know put a nice – my nice bow on DTR's career, basically, to end it with a win over USC and have a chance uh, to get to 10 wins if they can win the next week. It's a body of work game for me. I'm just looking at that going, okay, what about their body of work? Utah and Oregon uh, remains interesting. I wrote this today at johnconzano.com. If you're interested in the whole inside baseball, inside the game angle, 
Uh, I talked to Kyle Whittingham, talked to Jonathan Smith, talked to Dan Lanning, reached out to Jay Cornegay, who sets the lines for a sports book that operates over six states. So he's one of the biggest bookmakers in the country. They take uh, more bets than anybody in America in college football. They are the biggest uh, you know, sports book, so to speak, uh, operating across six states. Um, and I asked Cornegay, where do you get, like, on a Bo Nix thing? Like, you know, how do you flip that line? Because they went from Oregon minus three to Utah minus three like that when Chris Hudson made the comment earlier in the week. And he said, you know, obviously Bo Nix is out. It's next man in. Jay Cornegay got on the phone. He got in touch with other sports books. They tipped each other off. I said, how does that work? He says, well, we, we kind of have a gentleman's agreement to share information with each other. So the bookmakers are all talking to each other. Guys, Jay Cornegay told me that they set their lines, the greatest resource when it comes to injuries in college football, because there is no injury report, is Twitter. He said they, they know they have about four to six people that they follow at every school. By the way, they follow me, and they look and they go, right, we're, we're tracking injuries we're trying to figure out who's going to play. They are listening, and they are watching on Twitter. He says Twitter is the best resource that the books have. That shocked me. Does that surprise you guys? It's a little shocking uh, because there are so many trolls on Twitter. But I guess if you have the right people that you're following, right, like they must know who's in the know for different schools because there's all these beat writers and things like that. So, yeah, it does surprise me. But at the same time, like I get it because – there is a lot of information out there, uh, and it's just if you know the right people, you, you get it first. And, and in talking to him, what I gathered was, you know, there are some programs that have 18 or 20 beat reporters. Like if you go to Georgia, Alabama, LSU, there's a bunch of beat reporters. So I, I got me thinking about something. This is just my brain. And I, and I started thinking, like, you know, there are a lot of programs in major college football that don't have large press contingencies that follow them. Like Oregon State is one of them. Okay, there's like two or three people that cover Oregon State. Not very many, and there's a whole bunch more that cover Georgia. And so I said to Cornegay, like, you know, you probably don't know that Oregon State's going to be without a couple of starters. And he's like, no, we don't have that information. And there's no injury report. So, you know, I, you know, Kyle Whittingham said on this show earlier in the week that he would support an injury report if everyone else did. He says he sees no advantage in sharing information about injuries unless everyone else is going to do it. Dan Lanning on yesterday's show, boom. He says, I'm not going to talk about Bo Nix's injury. That puts us at a disadvantage. Jonathan Smith said the same thing on this show this week. He said, hey, uh, I'll do it if everybody else does it, but until then, you know, everybody's on their own. I reached out to the Pac-12, and I said, hey, would you be in favor of a conference-wide injury report? Because the NFL has a, has a rule where if a player doesn't practice, it has to be reported. Like, you know, the 49ers go out and Debo Samuel doesn't practice. The 49ers have to put that on the injury report. He did not practice today, and here's why. If they don't do that, they get fined. And those fines are significant. They're not cheap fines. So the NFL takes this very seriously. Then on Friday, everybody who plays fantasy football knows that Friday, here comes the injury report for the weekend games, and the teams have to list players who are not going to be available. If a player is not making the trip, if he's not going to be on the plane, and they don't list him as out for the game on the report, they get hammered by the NFL. So the NFL wants to know who's going to make the trip, who's questionable, who's doubtful, who's out, you know, and if you don't follow those rules, you get in trouble in the NFL. Now, I thought that gambling was the only reason why they did this. 
But then Jonathan Smith said something in his interview uh, uh, on the show this week. He said it's not that. He said from his standpoint, the football's not as good if you're having to make an adjustment in the first quarter versus being able to know on Thursday or Friday that somebody's out. Hey, here's what we're going to do at the beginning of the game. And it's a great point because I keep now I'm coming back to fans in general, your teams. If you're the Pac-12, you want your best teams to win the games. You don't want any deviation from the best team winning. Pac-12 goes to great lengths to try to game the schedule a little bit so that the best teams get an easier path. USC isn't playing Washington. USC's not playing Oregon. That's not accidental. Okay, There's a rotation that is happening, and they're going, okay, uh, you know, it's set up here so that we don't cannibalize ourselves. So the Pac-12 is doing that but is not willing to go one step further and go, look, uh, you know, the greatest, most prolific adjustment you have in a game is an injury mid-game, right? It happens in the NFL. It happens in college football. Coaches have to adjust. But why in the world would you put your teams in a position where they have to make an injury adjustment from kickoff? Like, as if Bo Nix gets hurt in pregame warm-up, or as if Cam Rising is hurt in the pregame warm-up. You ideally don't want that to happen if you're the Pac-12. Made the best team win. Football should be about players. It should be about coaches. It shouldn't be who gets to keep the best secret has the biggest advantage at kickoff. So I'm not blaming Dan Lanning alone here. I think he's part of a system. I think the Pac-12 should really look at going to an injury report. I'm told they've looked at it, and they can't get consensus from the coaches. But we had 3-0 and this week with coaches saying, hey, I'd support that. Hey, I'd support that. So uh, I think, you know, what do we need to do? We need to get 12 coaches on this show and, and hammer it out. But there it is. Like, yeah, it is a big thing for gamblers. But it's also, you know, how many Oregon fans are saying, I don't want to go to the 730 kickoff on Saturday night at Autzen Stadium because I, I, don't, I don't feel like Bo Nix is going to play. Like, you should know if you're having a ticket to the game if a player's not going to be available. You should know. That's my point. Coming up, we're going to hear from John Robbins, the longtime USC coach. Who does he like in the rivalry game of USC and UCLA? What advice would he give to Dan Lanning, first year, first time head coach at the University of Oregon? John Robinson, coming up next. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with the pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Okay, at the beginning of the season, Georgia whacked Oregon 49-3 to in week one. And I started looking, researching, trying to find an approximation. Some kind of coach who was a first-time, first-year head coach who had endured a bad loss in his very first game. Like Chip Kelly comes to mind, right? Had the Boise State loss, LeGarrette Blunt, the punch, all that. It was a nightmare. But what about coaches that just absolutely got destroyed on the field and turned it around and went on to go to a Rose Bowl? Because could that be Dan Lanning's story this year? Certainly if they beat Utah tomorrow, it's in the cards. But uh, JP, one of our crack researchers here, uh, brought up a coach that fits the bill. USC lost to Missouri in 1976. It so happened that John Robinson was a first-time, first-year head coach at USC. So we got to thinking, hey, let's track down John Robinson. So I spent weeks and weeks and weeks trying to get to John Robinson and exchanging messages with John Robinson. And I finally got a hold of him, and we have him now. And welcoming to the show, longtime 
USC head coach, national champion in 1978. Rose Bowl, went to the Rose Bowl as a player, by the way, at the University of Oregon. That's where he went to school. Then he became an assistant coach at the University of Oregon. Then later went on to become the USC head coach twice, 1976. Then again, later, 1993, coached at UNLV. Uh, coach John Robinson joining us. Coach, gotta, tell us what a day in the life of John Robinson at age 87 is. Well, so a day in the life is a lot of reading and I kind of enjoying myself. I like that. You deserve it. Um, you know, I, I kind of wanted to get you on because Dan Lanning is a first-year, first-time head coach, and I was looking at other coaches who had kind of been through this, and he's at Oregon, and you were at USC in 1976. You, you took over the USC program, and you lost your first game, and but you, you fixed that, and you made a Rose Bowl that season. And could you remember back that what that was like that first year at USC building a program? Well, I can remember the first game. It was against the University of Missouri. Everybody was excited, and we just got the hell kicked out of us. And uh, and I remember just saying, "This job's harder than I thought." But I, I, we did right the ship, kind of, and went to the Rose Bowl and. Uh, Wound up number two in the nation. When you look back at that year, you know, you go 11-1, and one, you go to the Rose Bowl, but after week one, you probably wondered if you were ever going to win a game. Uh, how, did you, how did you sort of attack week two? How did you fix that? Well, I went to the team and said, I know what's wrong. <laughs> I didn't, but I pretended like I did. And uh, I think... We really set about a plan. Uh, I'm sure if it was right or wrong, but uh, we just set out, and this is what we're going to do. And we played the University of Oregon, uh, my old alma mater, and uh, and they were a good team. Uh, uh, Rich Brooks was the coach, and they were a good team. You know, you talk about your time at Oregon. You you not only played there, you started your coaching career there as an assistant, 1960, and. You were with Len Casanova and Jerry Fry. What do you remember from that time at Oregon? Oh, the life was great. Uh, I had a lot of fun, a lot of friends who uh, lived in Eugene, um, and, and it was just a great time um, there. And uh, Eugene is in Oregon as a whole. Great places. The uh, the Pac-8 became the Pac-10, became the Pac-12. We're seeing changes now. What do you think of USC, UCLA possibly leaving for the Big Ten? Well, I think I, I don't like it. You know, it's like anybody, I guess, when you get old, things to stay the same. <clears throat> you know, it's changing, and uh, I guess we got to get used to the change. But the fact uh, of players making so much money, uh, we've got a, a – I live in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and we've got a, a, a gymnastics person that's going to make $2 million. Uh, how the heck does that happen? So, you know, you, you just kind of wonder what the heck is going on. You know, Coach John Robinson is our guest, uh, you know, national champion in 1978 – five-time conference champion, four-time Rose Bowl champion, and, you know, you've been around a lot of winning. Uh, 1958, you go to the Rose Bowl with Oregon as a player on that Oregon team. Uh, what was that experience like, uh, going to a Rose Bowl? Oh, oh, 
Oh, it was great. It was a bunch of bunch of hicks from Oregon coming to the big city. We <laughs> stayed at the Ambassador Hotel, which was a great hotel at the time. Uh, I, just everything about it was great, and we played great. We could have won the game. Ohio State was the number one team in the nation and one of the great teams, uh, they said, uh, but we almost beat them. We only had 45 46 guys on our roster, so it, uh, <laughs> it was the the mighty mites. You know, when you uh, you know on that team too, you had Jack Crabtree at quarterback. He was he was I think he was the MVP of that Rose Bowl, even though he was on the losing side. And you know, it wasn't like you had Phil Knight and Nike backing the program at that time. And you know, it must have felt good to get on the national stage. It, it was it was great, and we didn't know any better. We just thought, you know, I'd bring them on. <laughs> Who are these Ohio State guys? And, uh, and we we really did play well. We had a bunch of competitive men uh, on that team that uh, just liked to play, and and we we did a great, I think, a great coaching job. Uh, Jack Roach. Uh, uh, John McKay all were, were, were both, uh, you know, assistants on that staff, and uh, it was a great, great experience. You know, you go uh, from college football into the NFL with the Raiders as an assistant and then the uh, head of the Rams, and then you get back to college, and obviously after USC, you're at UNLV. You had a lot of different experiences. Did coaching change? Did, did the game change, or did you just get older and maybe wiser? <laughs> I don't know if I got any wiser, but uh, I think the game changes all, all, all the time. But it also stays the same amidst the change. Uh, I think it's important that people recognize that the things that work uh, continue to work. Uh, blocking, tackling, those kind of things uh, uh, are cliches, but they are very important. Do you have football dreams? Like, you know, at 87 years old, do you do you wake up in the middle of the night thinking it's third and three from the uh, from your own 40? You know, and you you got to call a play. No, I don't. Uh, I, I you know I have some some memories about things, and uh, every once in a while, or I can't go to sleep thinking about something. But uh, for the most part, no. What keeps you up? What's that thing that you keep thinking about that you know you you go to sleep thinking you know maybe I could have done that differently? Oh. I don't think there's any one thing of you know. Every once in a while, there are games that you that you look at and and think about and uh, obscure games, but uh, games that you that you should have gone. I, I know there's a UCLA game that I I should have gone for down. We were down on the goal line with the about a minute to go in the game, and our, our quarterback threw an interception on the one. Uh, you know, things like that, that you, you go, how could we have called that play? Coach, you got USC and UCLA playing this weekend. How big was that rivalry when you were there? Oh, it was big. And, and both teams were in the top ten. Uh, both teams just kind of hated each other. Uh, it was uh, a big deal. And, uh, and like I say, both teams were very good and uh, had really outstanding teams. Coach, uh, you know, you, you get a lot of young coaches who probably over the years have reached out to you and you've mentored a whole bunch of coaches in your coaching tree. But what kind of advice do you give 
a first-year coach like Dan Lanning at Oregon who, you know, he got kicked in the teeth like you did in game one by Georgia. They came back. They've lost another disappointing game last week. And what kind of advice do you generally give young coaches when they reach out? Oh, just, you know, just the typical things. Do what you know how to do and and don't don't uh, don't pretend to do something that's that's not realistic i mean you know i mean the the, the player that plays uh, if you get them to stay together have some sense of discipline uh, then you're going to be okay coach you think you you could still coach today oh i i know i could <laughs> and uh, uh, it's just a question of uh, getting a chance to do it and not being, I, I would get, uh, you know, like I say, I need, need a nap at halftime. Uh, <laughs> other than that, I could be. I love uh, that. John Robinson, our guest. All right, before I cut you loose, you know, uh, you, you had a lot of fun. I'm sure when you look back, you go, gosh, great memories, great players, uh, national championship, and all those bowl games. Did, at the time, did it feel fun to you, or is it more of a you're in the moment, you're working, you're always sort of worried about the next play and don't have time to enjoy it while you're in it? I think a little of both. I, I think it's there's there's fun and always fun in it uh, when you're when you're doing everything the best you can. But uh, you know, I think I, I think anytime you're totally immersed and totally involved in something. Uh, you're having fun, and I, I think that defines uh, fun to me is is doing the best you can and and making sure your team is is ready to play. We're putting together a John Robinson All Star team. Who's who's the first pick that comes to mind? Best player. Who would you start that team with? Oh, I don't know for sure. I, I Dan Fouts, uh, uh, Ahmad Rashad. Uh, 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 Marcus Allen, those are all names that, that come to mind. Uh, I'll tell you, guys, I, you know, I was uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, on the edge here, but uh, just now uh, we had a, a quarterback. Joe Burrow played for us at, at LSU. I was kind of like a, uh, a an advisor down there. And uh, I thought he was one of the great players. So, and I think he's going to have a career like that. Uh, but there are a whole bunch of guys that I can remember as being as being great players. I remember Charles White in your backfield. Uh, he wasn't bad Charles either. Charles White was running. Yeah, Charlie was a great one. Yes. All right, Coach. I really appreciate you making time for us, giving us some of your wisdom and expertise. Uh, I hope you're doing well and. Uh, I just wanted you to know we were thinking about you. Like, you came to mind as I looked at Dan Lanning, and I thought, gosh, is there another example of a coach who maybe lost game one and then turned it around? And and somebody reached out and said, John Robinson, 1976. Well, uh, I appreciate it. It was good talking to you. And, uh, the, the Ducks are uh, still, still uh, my favorite, and uh, uh, I, I'm sure they're going to continue to do well. John Robinson, yeah. thank you. A little bit nostalgic on today's show. It's a Friday. Why not? we got a bunch of Pac-12 games coming up this weekend. John Robinson, uh, longtime USC coach, national champion in 1978. There he goes. Coming up later in the show, we continue with the nostalgia theme. Joe Starkey, the voice of Cal football and the 49ers. Joe Starkey retiring. He's hanging it up all these years later.
You guys remember the play with Joe Starkey? Come on, how could you forget the play? Joe Starkey, he is retiring. He's calling his final big game tomorrow. Here's the play with Joe Starkey. Ball comes loose and the Bears have to get out of bounds. Rodgers along the sideline, another one. They're still in deep trouble at midfield. They tried to do a couple of... The ball is still loose as they get it to Rodgers. They get it back now to the 30. They're down to the 20. Oh, the band is out on the field. He's going to go into the end zone. He's going to the end zone. Will it count? The Bears have scored, but the bands are out on the field. There were flags all over the place. Statewide. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Loved that interview with John Robinson. Loved it. He was fantastic. Could he still coach today? It's a different game. Different game, but, man, good stuff from John Robinson, uh, longtime USC coach. Coming up top of the hour, you're going to hear from uh, Joe Starkey, the play-by-play voice of California football. He'll be calling his final big game. He's hanging it up. He's got two more games this season. He's hanging it up. He's retiring. He's going into the sunset. Is he really retiring, or is he Tom Brady retiring? Uh, But he's going off into the sunset and uh, going to call his final big game tomorrow. Guys, Stanford-Cal, can we weigh in on this game? Anybody like Stanford in this game? Anybody picking Stanford? How good do you feel about Cal? How do you see that big game? I had a friend today reach out to me who said, hey, how certain are you about your pick on this game? I like Cal, and uh, I think that if, you, uh, if you're really handicapping this game, uh, you know, Cal's favored by five. I think they're going to cover. They're at home. Again, home favorites in the Pac-12 Conference. They cover at a very high clip, almost 70% of the time. And uh, home favorites win the game outright uh, almost with certainty up until last week when we had two uh, road dogs win. But Cal at home against hapless Stanford, I like Cal a little better. Yeah, I think both teams are equally bad. Uh, so for that, like, I'm going to just take the points and hope that Stanford can cover. Like, I don't feel good about it, but I also don't know if 
Cal should be favored, you know, by almost a touchdown over anybody. So for like for that reason, like I just I have to take Stanford, but I don't feel good about it. I thought Peter made a really good point about it yesterday, how you know they fire Musgrave, the offensive coordinator, they're yep. bringing in the new one. Are, is Cal going to get that bump? You know, a lot of times you see a coach is fired. Totally. So, someone new gets in, and, and maybe they, they pull a trick play, or you know, but they play a lot more loose. That could happen. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if Cal you know, really comes out and actually has a solid offensive performance, but they've just been so bad. You you talked about body work. The body work for these two teams have been bad all year, so I'm just going to take the points and uh, hope hope that Stanford can cover, but I feel uh, not good about it. I have to reluctantly lay the points with Cal. I think the offensive coordinator thing is real, so with, with Musgrave out, maybe they play with a little bit of edge and urgency, knowing that, hey, these are real guys, established guys losing their jobs. You know, these college kids sometimes don't understand that, and uh, I think this, this gives Cal a little bit more of an edge on offense, and frankly, I'm just pissed at Stanford, so go yeah. Cal. I, I, I Look, you know, Bernard Muir, the Stanford athletic director, came out earlier in the week, and he did what is normally the kiss of death for a coach. He said, you know, we're not going to make any changes on our football staff until the end of the season. I, he was essentially signaling that David Shaw is safe, but they're going to um, probably look at replacing an offensive coordinator or a defensive coordinator or somebody on the Stanford staff or telling David Shaw he's got to do something differently. I just, I think that if David Shaw's job was actually in jeopardy, that there's a chance that Stanford could come, come out and really play for him. And, and I think those Stanford kids would come out and play hard for David Shaw. But conversely, I think I'm going to, I'm going to line up with you guys here because a lot of times when you look at, a uh, you know a coach who is leaving a program a lot of times we look at it and we go you know what um, you know the kids they, they felt like they were constrained a little bit or they felt like you know they they were limited in what they could do I kind of have the feeling that uh, the Cal players are going to really celebrate offensively in this game they're giving up five I like them I think they have a better offense than Stanford. They're at home in this game. Joe Starkey on the play. You know, I think I think Cal wins by a touchdown or more. And and if there's a blowout, I think it would be a Cal blowout, not a Stanford blowout. Joe Starkey's coming up. Uh, we'll talk about the big game with Big Joe. He had the call in the play all those years ago. The band was on the field. You'll hear Joe Starkey's story next. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Pack 8, Pack 10, Pack 12. Today's a little nostalgic with Joe Starkey, uh, legendary broadcaster for Cal football on the show, and John Robinson, the former longtime USC coach on the show. We're taking a trip down memory lane a little bit uh, today. I love these kinds of things. But in 1982, uh, one of the most remarkable plays in sports happens. And Joe Starkey, eighth season calling games for Cal, happens to be on the microphone. I've always been curious how Starkey got his start. Uh, you know, this the fact that the, the play happens in year eight. 
Is that better for Starkey than maybe it happening early in his career? You know, he's prepared for it. But there were four seconds on the clock. Cal was down 20 to 19. Stanford and John Elway had just scored with a field goal to take that 20 to 19 lead. And Joe Starkey on the ensuing kickoff gave us history. Harmon will probably try to squib it, and he does. Ball comes loose, and the Bears have to get out of bounds. Rogers along the sideline, another one. They're still in deep trouble at midfield. They tried to do a couple of... The ball is still loose as they get it to Rogers. They give it back now to the 30. They're down to the 20. Oh, the band is out on the field. He's going to go into the end zone. He's going to the end zone. Will it count? The Bears have scored, but the bands are out on the field. There were flags all over the place. Wait and see what happens. We don't know who won the game. There are flags on the field. We have to see whether or not the flags are against Stafford or Cal. The Bears may have made some illegal laterals. It could be that it won't count. The Bears, believe it or not, took it all the way into the end zone. If the penalty is against Stanford, California would win the game. If it is not, the game is over and Stanford is won. We've heard no decision yet. Everybody's milling around on the field. So she knew Cal football, so I was very familiar with Joe Starkey as a broadcaster at Cal and with the 49ers as well, and he's joining us now. He's calling his final big game on Saturday, Stanford-Cal. How's it feel, Joe? Like, you know, how does it feel kind of doing all these interviews and, and talking about your career? Um, well, you know, it's, it's kind of, a, in many ways, a approach avoidance conflict, you know. I mean, uh, I've had such a great run, and I enjoy every minute of it. And then you got I understand that this is the last couple of games left, so... It's, uh, I'm torn both ways. Right now, I can handle it pretty well. I think about next August, I might say, why did I do that? Yeah, yeah, look, look, Tom Brady did it. He came back, so you never never close the door. Uh, but l let's go back to the beginning uh, of your career. Did, did Was it broadcasting all the way for you uh, when you were a kid, or when did you find it? Yeah, I'm not even close. I, was, uh, I got an MBA from Loyola in Chicago. I went to work in uh, basically basic industry to start with, and there came a point, though, where I really wanted to get out of Chicago. Um, I was in the National Guard during the infamous 68 riots, Wow! and so I was getting shot at, and it was winter. We had a horrible winter that year, and so it suddenly got into my head that, you know what, maybe I'll <laughs> think about going west, where I had a chance to visit relatives when I was very young, and so uh, when the opportunity came up, Mattel was looking for corporate recruiters, and I applied, and uh, they came to Chicago to visit me, and believe it, I did the interview for the job with combat fatigues and an M1 rifle. <laughs> they, had, they had to hire you. What were they going to say? You know, you're, you're holding a rifle. <laughs> the funny thing, the first thing I said was, he said, now why do you want to leave Chicago? 
I just started laughing. I said, are you kidding? Look at this. <laughs> Look at me. You know? I love it. So, so anyhow, I went to the West Coast, and uh, after a fairly short time, uh, Union Bank approached me and asked if I wanted to work for them uh, as a corporate recruiter and in their industrial relations department. And it sounded like a good job, so I took it, and uh, I was a banker. I, um, in fact, when I actually left the business, I was the vice president of Union Bank, and it had been transferred to the San Francisco office, and basically in charge of uh, um, things like training, hiring people, that sort of thing. You end up in broadcasting. Did someone just hear you talking, or was this just something you started as a side hobby, or how did that happen? Well, as a kid, a friend of mine and I, we would sit in front of a television set on the south side of Chicago, and even when we were quite young in the 50s, the Cubs and Sox televised all their home games. And so you could sit in front of the TV set and pretend to be an announcer, you know, grab a popsicle stick or something, and uh, the two of us would go back and forth and describe the cover Sox game. And so I had that kind of in the back of my mind. Um, I always admired some of the broadcasters involved. Uh, Jack Brickhouse, Jack Quinlan were the key guys for the Cubs when I was a kid. And so uh, when I got out to the West Coast, and I was successful in banking. It was still in the back of my head that somewhere I ought to take a run at this. And so I started taping games at the Forum for the Lakers and Kings. The ABA existed then in basketball, and I was able to actually sit at the press table and practice into a tape recorder. And when things started getting good enough, um, I started sending out tapes. And in 72, the broadcaster for the California Fields hockey team took the job with the LA Kings so I knew they needed an announcer. I took my tape recorder to Chicago, Charlie Finley's office. He listened to the tape, and he hired me. That's fantastic. I love Isn't that. that yeah. I love that. It, 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 in your eighth year, you end up in the game with the play that, you know, is the play. And, uh, you know, give us, you know, I've read sort of the narrative of that day. You know, your your son was 15 years old. He was serving as your spotter that day, you know, and it was it was just an interesting thing, and I think about this. Um, you know, you're in year number eight. Are were you glad that that kind of moment happened? Not in year one, two, or three. That you were seasoned enough in season number eight to to handle a moment like that. Yeah, I really would it would have made a difference uh, because I had really no training as a broadcaster. That when I got my first job with the Seals doing their TV and radio in '72, I didn't do any football until I got the Cal job in 75, and the only football I'd had in my life was playing a junior college team, uh, Thornton Junior College on the far south side of Chicago, and that was my entire football knowledge. So I was really a rookie in every sense of the word, and I was lucky enough, though, to have a real pro working with me, Monty Stickles, yeah. who had been a tight end with the 49ers and at Notre Dame, uh, really helped me a lot in those first uh, couple of years, kind of learn the game. And so um, I had a good, a good beginning from that. <laughs> Joe Starkey, our guest, uh, longtime broadcaster in the Bay Area, Cal football, uh, 49ers as well, among other things, Winter Olympics. Uh, uh, you know, Joe, let's go back to that 1982 game. John Elway at Stanford, there was a lot of theater. You know, he drives Stanford down. They take the lead 20 to 19. They kick a field goal. Um, at that point, what were you thinking? And kind of take us through it a little bit. Well, realistically, uh, everybody – 
uh, in the in the ballpark, including me, figured that uh, Stanford was going to win the game. I mean, uh, Cal basically uh, has only four seconds on the clock, and therefore really has to bring the ball all the way back. I did one of the first things I said is they squibbed the kick. Is the Bears have to get out of bounds so maybe they could throw a hail mary? But throwing a hail mary, you know, even then the clock would probably run out on them. They got an enormous break by a mistake by the Stanford coaches. The Stanford coaches were almost evenly divided between stopping the clock at eight seconds or four seconds. If you stop it at eight and they had a timeout left, something goes wrong, you can maybe get a quick timeout and kick it again. If you stop it at four, game's over, no matter what happens. But they didn't. They stopped it at eight, and so there were four seconds left, which gave Cal the opportunity to do what they did. As the moment's unfolding, it's evident that you're reacting in real time, and I think that's what makes the call beautiful. It's authentic. This is not rehearsed. This wasn't Joe Starkey who had practiced a line or two. You were just calling what you saw. As it's unfolding, though, were you uh, were you concerned that you were missing stuff, or because it was a very unorthodox play with the laterals, and it looked a little bit like you know a rugby game? Well, I wasn't concerned at the time, but I was concerned later. Uh, because after I uh, finally saw a tape of it, in fact, that night we happened to be going to a neighborhood party, and uh, one of the nightly uh, news stations showed the play. And as I watched it, I thought, why didn't I, why didn't I get those names? I didn't mention a single name during the call. And in that era, 1982, there's, uh, ESPN may have just started. There wasn't satellite. There wasn't all the cable shows. There wasn't instant replay stuff where you can slow things down and uh, take a look at all that. So I was very uncomfortable with the fact I didn't name any names. But later, as years went on, a few years later, and I watched it more carefully, I began to realize, well, I should not feel guilty about not naming names because I couldn't see them. There were too many people in the way, too many things going on. It was late afternoon. There's no lights in Berkeley at that time. And so I got comfortable with the call, even though I didn't name anybody. The uh, the attachment that you have to Cal is is interesting and notable, too, because I can feel your enthusiasm for that moment. And you knew by the end of that season that what Cal had been through. You know, they won a couple games start the year, then it was kind of win one, lose one, alternating. They were really up and down under Joe Cap, but they had some people on that team like Ron Rivera at linebacker, Gail Gilbert at quarterback. Um, you knew what the what that team had been through and what that win meant for them. Oh yeah, there's no doubt about it. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the players, Gary Plummer, ended up my partner on 49er games for 10 years. So we had a lot of connections with that squad. But um, you know, it, in that era, again, the other issue was there weren't many bowl games. If you didn't go to the Rose Bowl, there may have been two or three other opportunities. Period for the entire conference. In fact, Stanford had they won, had already been told they were going to play, I think, in the Independence Bowl or one of those, um, and it would be the only bowl game of Elway's career if he won that game. And when he didn't, that meant this great, great quarterback never got a chance to play in a bowl game as good as he was. The uh, the play, as it stands, Cal celebrated it, and Stanford to this day, some Stanford fans are still mad about it. But you have that great moment where you say the most amazing, sensational, dramatic, heart-trending, heart exciting, thrilling. Like, were you just reaching for words there and, and saying what came to mind? Or was that something that you had said as a kid when you were watching games in Chicago? You know, it took me a while, but I, I did eventually realize that I'd used those phrases one other time. It wasn't a setup. I never rehearsed anything because I, I thought they would ruin the momentum of any call I ever made. But uh, by sheer luck, 
ABC had the rights to the 1980 Olympics Placid, and I worked for ABC in San Francisco, and so they sent me to Lake Placid. So you had the Miracle on Ice call uh, yeah, on for radio. ABC on yeah. radio. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Joe, so that was amazing, you know. Joe, you're looking. Yeah, you know, as you're exiting here, you're exiting a conference that has undergone changes from the Pac-8 to the Pac-10 to the Pac-12. Um, I'm nostalgic. I grew up in the Bay Area, as I mentioned. I don't like it. I don't like USC and UCLA leaving. How do you feel? Good idea. Outside of the uh, uh, people running the two schools now, USC because private school, nobody can do a thing about it. But I know when we played USC a couple of weeks ago, I couldn't find a single fan that I talked to who thought it was a good idea. They liked the idea that they would continue to play West Coast teams and not have all their road games somewhere in the East. Yeah, I, yeah. The, the part of it that bothers me, too, is that, you know, this con the tradition of the conference. Do you think the conference loses tradition? Um, I think so. I think, yeah, I think this is a – I don't see any positives to this at all for the conference in general. In fact, you know, a couple of schools should be real nervous. If you go to Washington State or Oregon State, they don't have a big fan base. They don't have a big population center for uh, television ratings. So what's going to happen? What will happen to the conference in general? What if Oregon gets invited to go somewhere else? What will they do if they think the uh, so-called Pac-10 or maybe down to the Pac-8 by then isn't a logical place to stay? There's a lot of ramifications to this that are not good. Now, you, uh, for over the years, you probably bump into people who say, hey, uh, I was there, or they want to talk to you about the play. Uh, is it true? One of the Rolling Stones came up to you and said, hey, uh, you're the guy, like, met you and knew the play? No, there was, a Rolling Stone was involved, but he, he didn't. What, what happened was is that uh, years ago, I guess it was somewhere like about six or seven years after the play, my wife and I had taken our youngest uh, kid to a trip uh, to Greece and Italy, and so we were wrapping up a summer trip and up in Rome, and it was a very hot day in July. And uh, we went to a hotel that overlooks the Vatican, a nice, uh, beautiful hotel called the Cavalieri. And the wife and son, it's about noon, 1 o'clock, and they said they want to go take a nap. I want to go to the pool. So I go down to the pool and grab a book and sit down in a lounge chair. And uh, incredibly, the entire Rolling Stones band, uh, wives and kids, all of them, joined me at the pool. And we're like the only ones there. Um, and so who sits down to me next but to Charlie Watts, the drummer. So I start talking to Charlie Watts, and they're telling me about the tour and what they're going to do and all that. To this day, I can't believe I didn't ask him for tickets, for God's sake. But I didn't. <laughs> and, and so uh, we sat down, and he said, you know, mate, why don't we go in the pool and cool off? So we go to the pool, and we uh, stand in the shallow end. And who joins us but, believe it or not, Lou Ferrigno, who was a star at that time of the Incredible Hulk TV show. And so he's in the pool. I'm in the middle between these guys. And a guy jumps in from the other end of the pool, and Charlie Watts is convinced the guy wants to take his picture or get an autograph. But he comes up to the three of them and he says, aren't you the guy who called that Cal play? <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And the other two are looking around. What the heck is he talking about? <laughs> you talk about the like you couldn't make that up. You know what That's I mean? Right. What a, you got it. What a great moment. Hey Joe, congratulations on your career. You know, I know you're hearing a lot of that, but I really hope you soak it in. You gave so many people. I was I was 12 years old when you made that call. You gave oh. you gave so many people in the Bay Area uh, such a special moment, and it was such a special moment in college athletics. Period. End stop. I mean. Just congrats to you, and I hope you soak it up here in these last few games, and, and keep Tom Brady in mind. You may come back. 
Uh, there you go. Not a bad plan. <laughs> Thanks very much. Joe Starkey, thank you. Bye-bye. Wow. <laughs> that is in Greece, in the pool. Oh, here are the Rolling Stones. Oh, hey, Lou Ferrigno's in the pool as well. And uh, who gets recognized? Joe Starkey, because he made the call. Uh, remarkable story, remarkable career. Um, as uh, somebody who's got a microphone in front of me, look, I relate to Joe Starkey a little bit. I grew up, I was doing play-by-play calls and all that stuff and, you know, calling games and well, pretending I was on the radio and never imagining. And I'm sure lots of people out there went on and did more serious things than I'm doing that that that, uh, that did that as well. But uh, so cool to hear sort of his path, his journey. And uh, all these years later, the guy who was the play-by-play announcer of the California Golden Bears since 1975 uh, is hanging it up. He'll have his final big game tomorrow. And uh, look, wouldn't it be uh, wouldn't it be special to have a uh, Cal kickoff return at the end of the game and have Joe Starkey on the call? Leave it right here. You got the bald face truth. We're a little nostalgic today. Uh, statewide. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on seven fifty the game. Love those interviews today. John Robinson was great. Joe Starkey was great. I don't know if you enjoyed them. I enjoyed them. Which interview was better? Steven, Judah, you're not going to hurt their feelings. It has more to do with your personal taste. But uh, USC's longtime head coach, John Robinson, joined us at Hour 1. Joe Starkey just heard from him. Which interview resonated with you more? I like the Starkey one a little bit better. I, I, I just love the stories that he had. Uh, you know, they, the fans want to meet him. Instead of Frigno, like that is great. Uh, him having the rifle, like that's yeah. amazing. Like the the stuff that he's been a part of, and you know, being a part of history like that. Like he's part of maybe the most iconic play in college football. I, I just think that's awesome. Yeah, well, I'm always a Joe Starkey guy, so I loved both of them. Don't get me wrong, uh, but Starkey has a special place for me. Guys, uh, am I wrong in thinking that? And I mean this with all due respect to the Pac-12 conference. If that play happens in today's era, do the Pac-12 officials get in the way? (laughs) Am I wrong for thinking that? You're not wrong. I'm not trying to be mean. You're actually right, John. (laughs) I'm not trying to be mean, but I I, I kept, as I'm talking with Starkey, it was all I could do to not be like, aren't you glad you weren't in this era of officiating? Because how fast did it happen? Like, you hear his call. Then he's sort of saying the players are milling around. I don't know if it's going to hold up, all this stuff. And then he very quickly says it's going to count, and Cal's going to win, and they're going to win the big game. And I just kept thinking replay would have messed this up. Like, that, like I'm glad in that era that they just kind of let it go. And the band's on the field. Are you kidding me? Well, how, I mean, how phenomenal. Uh, you know, correct my memory if I'm wrong, but – did they have an illegal lateral in there somewhere, or was it all was it all on the up and up? I, know I think they're... if you ask Stanford, they had a couple, right? Yeah, two are close. I yeah. think. they uh, Viral Sorogen, who is uh, one of the longtime Pac-12 officials, I've emailed a little bit with him. The Bay Area News Group asked Viral to kind of go back and look at the play from a replay perspective, and you know, was there, you know, was there a uh, 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 you know, a play that was uh, was a uh, you know a lateral that shouldn't have been. 
he was the Pac-12's uh, supervisor of instant replay in 2007. It was the 25th anniversary of the play. So they ha- asked him to review the play. Now, he, uh, he watched it. He said there was insufficient video evidence to overturn the third lateral, but he believed the fifth lateral was released at the uh, 22-yard line and touched at the 20-and-a-half-yard line meaning that it was forward by about two yards. He said he would have been tempted to reverse it, then go outside and get in the car with his motor running and get out of there. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think he would have overturned. That's oh. pretty funny. He can't go fast enough out of that stadium. But, but at I, least he knew. He had uh, to get out of town. I'm glad they didn't have replay. The band's on the field. Like, you know, how do you factor that into it? Stanford's band... Ran out onto the field because, you know, those band kids didn't know. The ball got kicked off. They saw zeros on the clock. They don't know that there's a play going. Those band kids are probably, you know, blowing a point one zero, you know, while holding the trumpet and thinking the game's <laughs> over. And here comes, you know, Cal playing rugby the other way. Those Stanford kids, not so bright, huh? I'm just saying, you know, I was on the field one time for an Oregon-Stanford game at Stanford Stadium, and the Stanford kids stormed the field. I wasn't afraid. It was a bunch of engineering kids. It was a bunch, you know, I said, you know what? These guys are going to go on. They're going to invent companies, tech companies. They're going to run the world. But I was not afraid of being trampled. Those, they're not like an SEC crowd coming over the rail. But I, thought, I think it's a really cool moment, iconic moment in sports. No offense to John Robinson, who, who I think is a wealth of knowledge. But I, I really liked hearing John Robinson kind of talk about his time at Oregon more than anything. But I think the interview with Starkey, to me, is what I will end up thinking about after today's show. We should do that every show, like uh, give give a winning interview. Which yeah. interview was the best? And then the interviewees try to outdo each other. That would be good. I also then, would, would we feel bad? Like Josh Newman of the Salt Lake Tribune hasn't even been on yet. Oh, no, he doesn't stand a chance. No, offense. He's landed in Oregon. He's landed in Portland. And he is supposed to be uh, joining us, like, you know, when he gets to his hotel, he's driving to his hotel or whatnot. You know, what if he's listening to the show and he's tuned in? Is he going to be insecure about his interview? Put pressure on these guys. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. He should okay. be nervous. And then do, you know, an interview of the week, <laughs> yeah. interview of the month, interview right. of the year. What was the interview of the week so far? Who are the candidates this week? And I'll, and I'll name off some of the people we've had on. Mike Parker joined us on the show. Mm. He was really good. We had uh, Kyle Whittingham on the show. Dan Lanning was on the show, Oregon coach. We had Jonathan Smith, the Oregon State coach, on the show. Kelly Graves, the uh, Oregon women's basketball coach, was on the show. Uh, Jack Coletto was on. Bruce Barnum was on the show. Um, you know, so far, Josh Furlong was on yesterday's show. Who's your pick for interview of the week right now with, with only Josh Newman of the Salt Lake Tribune remaining on the docket? Ooh, uh, it's tough. It's down to two. Uh, I don't know. Actually, I'm going to have to think about it now. Starkey was really good. Um, there's Okay, so there's three that I like. Starkey would okay. be one of them. I really enjoyed Kelly Graves' interview. I thought he was awesome. Uh, very entertaining. Always good. Yeah. Didn't take himself too seriously, which is what I really loved. Called out UCLA for not caring about the students. I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, and then Mike Parker is always really good. So I think it's down to those three for me. I'd probably go Starkey. Number one was Starkey for me. And then I have a few moments. Like, I laughed out loud when you and Landing were talking about Thanksgiving plans and uh, and, <laughs> and coffee habits. 
those that was a great moment. And then Whittingham, when you gave Whittingham the chance to ask you a question, yeah. he's like, no, nah, I'm good. <laughs> that was pretty funny. <laughs> but Mike Parker said some things about the Pac-12 that I had been feeling and I didn't have words for him. And then when Mike got on and and you know did his uh, did his rant, I was like, yes, that's what I was feeling this whole time. So I thought Mike was awesome. He was number two for me, and Joe Starkey number one, and number three was Graves. I agree, Graves was awesome this week. Yeah, Parker I, Parker yeah. said the Pac-12 is too good. Yeah, I'm dude, like <laughs> they're too good to be uh, you know to be recognized. Call me a homer, I guess, but. Seriously, there's something to that. Just because one team goes undefeated in a conference doesn't make that conference awesome. I agree. Look at uh, Clemson and the ACC. Exactly. Like, I mean, what uh, are we doing? 100%. There's a whole bunch of instances of programs that are great or viewed as great, and then you look at sort of the rest of the conference, and it's not very good. The top half of the Pac-12 is really good this year. Six-ranked teams right now in the – in the college football playoff poll. Like, if Oregon State can win at Arizona State this week, the conference is going to finish the regular season with six teams sitting in the top 25. That is that is terrific. Half the conference ranked is terrific. Problem's going to be, the narrative's going to be, hey, they don't, have a, they don't have a great team this year. And, you know, I think UCLA is going to beat USC, and I think that will be the narrative. And, you know, maybe that's your peeve. On that note, what is your peeve? What do you need to get off your chest? All right, here's your opportunity, 503-417-7575. Coming up, what is your peeve? I'll give you my peeve. I want to hear yours as well. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. We're going to talk about the NFL weekend coming up. Also, uh, the biggest... And best sports moments ahead on this weekend. We're going to try to uh, tell you what you should be watching and should be paying attention to. But first, we're going to start with what your peeve is. 503-417-7575 is the number. Anna's in the studio. Anna, are you ready for this? You look like uh, you're all fired up and ready, are you? Absolutely. Okay. I'm always ready to tell you what my peeve is. I know. <laughs> you should know this, that. <laughs> basically, my day consists of Anna playing What's Your Peeve? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. This is just an extension of our married life. Yeah, yeah. I heard it. I uh -huh. get it. Yeah. Okay. And I'm all right. it's mostly about you, too. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, yeah, we'll talk. I got another thing I want to talk about coming up, uh, but you know, that's a whole other subject. Okay, oh, let's wow. let's move on. Quite a tease. Let's play this benchmark. What's your peeve? Oh, that pisses me off. That pisses me right off. Call 503-417-7575 and tell Kinzano what's your peeve on the BFT. Brought to you by Revolution Dental Implant Center. A smile revolution, one day solution. What's your P? 503-417-7575. We're going to go around the room. We'll take your phone calls. I'm going to start with a phone call today because uh, maybe your peeve is that we all get to go first and that the callers have to wait. Nope, nope, not today. Mike in Portland, you go first, man. Honorary guest. Go ahead. Say, John, uh, I'm not going to mention no name, but... It has to do with supermarket, man. When I go into the men's restroom and I step up to the urinal, my peeve is that there's always a puddle of pee on the floor. I don't like that, man. And then I watch guys come in the restroom and they walk up to the urinal and they step in it. 
and then they track it all through the store. So that's my piece, man. And I wish the stores would put some mats down there or do something about that. That's my piece. Yeah, well, you have better. You have better aim. Some people just have bad aim. There you go. <laughs> Drop. He's so pissed. Uh, is that a uh, is that a common peeve? Does anybody else have that peeve? I I also think it's kind of rude if you can't hit the mark. If you have bad aim, maybe uh, you shouldn't be playing the game. Women generally don't have this peeve. Like women, we you know. Yeah, you might if you live in a home with someone who has bad aim. <laughs> well, no, yeah, know? yeah, yeah. But I'm saying like yeah. in a public restroom, generally women don't find puddles of urine next to the toilet. I always will take the urinal that is farthest away from the door because you figure that's why. Because why? it's used less frequently. People are li inherently lazy, uh -huh. and so the ground is generally cleaner down Fresher. there. But you got to wade through uh -huh. everyone else's urine to get there. Okay. I see you know? the logic in that. Yeah. So I got to go all the way down there. Sean's in Sandy. Sean's going to follow that up. Sean, what is your peeve? My peeve is people have a peeve with you, but they don't say nothing. Mm -hmm. They just give you the silent treatment or they mean mug you. And I got to ask them, I said, dude, do you have a problem with me? Or would you like one? Amen. Amen. People who don't, day, yeah, people who don't, yes, kind of vent. Just the passive aggressive yeah. microaggressions. I saw, I read yes. something about that recently. Oh. Um, I stumbled onto something about that. And, and the prevailing theory was that these were people that didn't grow up in places where they felt like it was safe to share. True. True. So they, um, they kind of passively hold on to things. Mm -hmm. And it, yeah, there's nothing. It is hard to deal with someone who's passive aggressive. Oh, that's the worst. Especially me, like the Italian in me is just like, let's let, let's go. Yeah. Just let it out. I know. Let's I know. let it out and have some pasta. Yeah. You yeah. know. And the Asian in me is like, let's let let it out and just have some like chicken fried rice. It's okay. You know? It's okay. Just let it out. Yell. It's okay to yeah. let it out. There's a lot of there's a lot of expressing. Yeah going on in this household well, that's, between that's our cultures and, and get, then eating and then the eating show i get three hours of it yes. you know just unfiltered <laughs> you know uh, that's why i sit in silence in a dark room sometimes uh 503-417-7575 is a number um who's got a peep who wants to go first who has the who is itching to get it out i got one here uh go you know, I feel like this is a lot of driving things that we talked about on here and mine is definitely a driving thing so when i'm dropping my kid off at school just the way that people drop their kids off and then just sit there in your way so you can't get out of there. Like, I just want to drop them off, get in and out. But people, like, wait and they watch him, like, walk away. And they have to get, like, five waves in. You mm -hmm. know, they got to do a high five. It's just like, you know what? Drop the kid off. Get out of my way so I can drop my kid off and go home and take a nap. Like, this is what I want to do. <laughs> and get out of my way. They're messing with your nap. Yeah. But also the person ahead of you. Why don't they have their kid already ready, ready to go? Pit why stop. is that? Why is the backpack not already on the body? Well, is this a surprise? I'm getting out. Oh, we're know. at the front of the line. Right. Like, you should be ready. You the, had the, five or six car lengths to figure out that it was going to be your turn. Yeah, right? have the backpack in the back seat with the kid. Like, don't right. have it in the front seat. Like, what? Right. come on. Let's just seat belt should be unbuckled. Shoes exactly. should be tied. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jacket should be on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is, you're in line. Yeah. This is, it's like the ski lift. You know, the ski lift doesn't <laughs> yeah. stop. No. 
It should be like the ski lift. The car actually should not be allowed to stop on drop off. <laughs> Just a rolling it twenty. Have to be a rolling twenty. <laughs> you roll, and your kids do a shoulder roll out of the car. They got like mattresses on the ground. <laughs> they they should, roll right into the school. It should be as unforgiving as a ski lift. It'll yep. just come up from behind yep. and knock you down if you're not ready. Steven, thank you for sharing yeah, that. Getting like, that off your chest. I, man. I, I, got, more, I got more to it, though. So, okay. Okay. So, in the parking lot, there's, there's enough room for two lanes, right? So you can go and you can drop one off in the right-hand side, and people you can drop off and go on the left. But the person in front of me today just stopped right in the middle. I'm just stuck there. Oh, and true. Uh, yeah, and I'm like, come on, let's go. And then the little one's like, what, Dad, what? And it's like, I'm trying not to cuss at them, and it's yep. just bad. It's kind of rude if yeah. you really think about so it. I had yeah. to get that off my chest. Thank you. Okay, let's uh, go to, let's, isn't that cathartic? Oh, let's go to Mark in Portland. Mark, what's your peeve? Go ahead. Well, it's crazy peeve for me. It's sports-related, and it's having to listen to you guys talk about college football's four-team invitational like Thank it has you. any validity. It just no, drives no. me nuts. I mean, the... We don't know how good uh, TCU is because they play in a completely different conference than all the other conferences. So nobody knows really who's the best conference top to bottom. And really nobody knows who's better between Oregon and Oregon State. We, I mean, right now I would probably put my, my chips on Oregon State to beat Oregon. So that's, we don't – I love watching the NFL, John, because I don't have to listen to any of this. It's yeah. absolutely ridiculous. I can't wait till we have a 12-team playoff. Uh, it just drives me do you nuts. Worry, do you worry, even in a 12-team playoff, that we may have some of the same frustrations, or is it going to be enough that conference it, champions are in? Yes. It's, everything to me is about the conference champion. That's how the traditional Rose Bowl was set up. It was the only real college playoff game, as I said, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It was the Big Ten champion versus the Pac. 10 champion cut and dry no no uh no elites could change that and so when the conference champion i don't care if you put four u.s uh sec teams in as long as my conference champion controls their own destiny i'm i'm becoming more and more a, a pac-12 fan as opposed yeah. to I'm, I'm an oregon fan but i'm yeah. also i'm gonna love usc right now i'm rooting for usc to win every game because they're the only yeah. team left to get in that stupid playoff yeah and i think they're probably gonna lose that's the way it's gonna go i want more of your peeps 503-417-7575 i'll share mine and i'll share hers i want yours as well back to the bald face truth with john canzano peter Sampson is up next with the pulse from six to seven on 750 the game I don't know if you played video games in the 1980s, but every once in a while, like, you'd get extended play. Well, we're in extended play here on a segment we like to call What's Your P? 503-417-7575 is the phone number. Judah, Judah, what's your P? Get it off your chest right here. Runners up this week, dogs crapping in public places. Uh, way too many spam calls on my phone. Unbelievable. Okay. Yeah. Injury reports have been bothering me, uh, but that's not my peeve. Also, Twitter gets a runner-up this week. Yeah. Um, but runner, I'm going kick, I'm Yeah. Aaron Rodgers got, was a peeve last night because he's like, no excuses, but my thumb is still hurt. Well, it's like, yeah. well, that's an excuse, dummy. 
Uh, but my peeve is kickoff times. I really need to know when ducks and beeves are going to play next Saturday. I know. I, I have to wait till Sunday. Are you kidding me? Like that? It's up my craw because there's a chance that my my uh, you know the school I went to, the D three school I went to, uh, plays Linfield next week in the playoffs, Ooh. and I really want to go if that's the case. But I got to know when the ducks and beeves play. So that's that's my official peeve is waiting for these stupid kickoff times. You know, you'll know Saturday night instead of Sunday because sometimes it leaks out. But I'll just tell you this: if there's three time slots left, 12:30 on ABC, 1 p.m. on the Pac-12 Network, and 7 or 7:30 on ESPN. So, but we know that Oregon and Oregon State have to be either the ABC or the ESPN game. So it's either 12:30 or 7 or 7:30 for the game formerly known as the Civil War. The other game will be a 1 p.m. game. It will not be uh, Oregon or Oregon State. It will either be Utah-Colorado or Washington-Washington State. If Oregon beats Utah, I, I uh, would put it at 99% that the game will be 1230 on ABC. So you should be rooting for the Ducks to beat Utah because that would give Oregon and Oregon State the 1230 slot. Yes, that would be awesome. I, I also think there's a shot that if um, Washington, um, you know, Washington-Washington State – there's a shot that that game could end up as the other game. I th- I kind of feel like Utah-Colorado is bound for the Pac-12 network regardless, but I think it'll be either ABC taking the Apple Cup at 1230 or taking Oregon-Oregon State at 1230. But if Oregon wins, because, you know, uh, Washington's not going to lose to Colorado. If Oregon wins, uh, I think the game is 1230. If Oregon loses, I, I venture to say we're looking at a late kickoff in Corvallis. It's good to know. I think you're right. So there it is. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. What is your peeve? Anna still hasn't gone yet. We're going to make her wait. Jacob's in Eugene. Jacob, what's your peeve? My peeve is people driving in the left lane on the interstate. <clears throat> it, that they're going too slow. Yeah, going like 55 miles an hour, and they got like yeah. nine cars behind them ready to pass them. And they'll, you know, then there'll be a semi in the right lane. Yep. And, you know, it, it just stops traffic it's actually extremely dangerous <laughs> yeah you're gum you're gumming up the works and when you pass them do you glare at them it depends on who it is you know if it's like a senior citizen no i'll just keep going but if it's you know a younger person yeah i'll probably give them you know the uh the stink eye or something yeah it generally is an older person and i keep thinking i don't you know someday i'm going to be that person i don't want to glare too hard but i often i'm like come on you got to get over we're all yeah. going too fast. You're going to cause an accident. You're right. Thank you for that one. That's a public service. Yeah. Uh, do I got time for a second one? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Get Oregon not having good good defensive play. Seems like it's just <laughs> offense, offense, offense with, like, two good defensive players. If we could just have a, a complete team, maybe the expectations in this damn town will might actually get met. Love the show. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. He got that off his chest. He's not going to carry that into the weekend. Defense for Oregon has to be better. He might carry it. Into the weekend. <laughs> he's going to have to. <laughs> he's carried it for a while, but yeah, uh, I don't see their defense. We'll see. Uh, we'll check tomorrow. in again on Saturday night with him. Anna, Anna, what's your peeve? Uh, my peeve is at grocery stores or anywhere where there's a shopping cart. It's like if you're able-bodied, there's no reason that you should be the person that takes the shopping cart, unloads the items into your vehicle and then just ditches the shopping cart in the middle of a parking lot like especially if there's a shopping cart corral within walking distance of where you're parked but it's just not that much trouble 
to take it back either to the shopping cart corral or back into the store. It's just, it, I don't understand it. You're just creating a hazard in the middle of the parking lot. And, like, putting the front two wheels up on the little island mm-hmm. that has the tree that, that's you know, not where a dog pees or whatever. That's not enough. That's not any Do better. Do you think we're encouraging the store not to hire the, uh, you know, what they call a courtesy clerk? Mm. Uh, we used to call it the cart person. Yeah. Um, you know, are they? I'm not about that. Are but doesn't we? Doesn't that a person but, have other tasks? Are that we they enabling do? these stores to not hire people <laughs> because we're returning the carts to the corral? So it's actually more charitable of me to leave a, my car just askew <laughs> in a parking uh, lot somewhere. I'll just tell you, as as a job security for somebody, as a human being who used to have to round up those carts yeah. as a 17 year old kid uh-huh. uh, on a hot summer day. Yeah. I really did appreciate the people who brought it back to the corral, and I tend to bring it back to the corral myself. There are exceptions. Let's say when we had our, our kids were really young. Yeah. I put it, you know, they're in the cart. I right. go to the car. Yeah. I put them in the car. I didn't yeah. want to leave them and then have to walk, like, even 50 feet away. Sure. I get that. Because I don't want to leave them unsupervised in there the car. There are exceptions. Okay. So, yeah. you know, maybe you're just saying people with young kids should not be shopping. No. No, I I do make, yes, I do make exceptions. This is not like a hard and fast rule for everybody. I'm just saying able-bodied people, you know, that don't have other extenuating circumstances, like, I know that there's not. It's just a matter of you being lazy and choosing not to do it. Yeah, I've always wanted to follow those people home and put a cart in their driveway (laughs) and be like, hey, you left this back at the store. (laughs) Maybe you could take it back next time. Uh, Here's my peeve. Okay. Yeah, go. Uh, a lot of talk today uh, in the news cycle about the potential for the Pac-12 to bring UCLA back into the fold. There's some rumors circulating about the uh, idea that the Pac-12 is willing to pay the penalty that, that yet UCLA would suffer if they reversed course and decided to stay with the Pac-12 conference. Okay. Um, I don't have that on the record myself. It's a rumor that's out there that's circulating. That's why people are hearing it for the first time out of my mouth. But uh, my peeve is with people who root for, like, SMU, UNLV, San Diego State, Boise State, and Fresno State being angry at the idea that UCLA potentially, maybe there's a 10% chance they reverse course, being angry at that. Like, there's an SMU fan in particular who was, like, tweeting at me last night angrily, and I was like, you know, you, you clearly, like, this is all you do all day, and he finally admitted He's very frustrated with SMU being in stuck in a no-good conference. He wants them in the Pac-12. And so it's really his hope that SMU can get there, but he's just trolling people unnecessarily <laughs> like any of us care. Like, yeah. you know, it's just... He's displacing his frustration. Yeah, just be mad at SMU <laughs> for leaving you in a crappy predicament. Don't be mad at everybody else, or don't even... If UCLA does stay in the Pac-12... Don't be mad at them. They're doing what's best for UCLA. Hmm. Don't be mad at the Pac-12 either. That's my peeve. Got that off my chest. Don't have to carry it to the weekend. Ooh, yeah. Carefree here. Dave's in Vancouver. Dave, what's your peeve? Yeah, so I have a follow-up to, like, uh, an earlier caller's peeve about peeing on the floor. <laughs> yes. In, in a grocery store. And then I love Anna's. That's another call some other day. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I work in a grocery store. You know, my, my peeve is people that disrespect uh, public bathrooms. You know, that's a service we provide. 
You know, you go to a lot of small stores, they don't have public bathrooms. Mm. And, uh, you know, they always blame the store, not the person that did pee on the floor. Like, you know, we can't go in the bathroom and clean up after every single customer, uh, you know. And people always come to me like, hey, so the men's bathroom needs attention. And, you know, I'll, I'll call the dude and uh, it gets taken care of. But yeah, Whose uh, job is that? Um, like you mentioned, a courtesy clerk. Yeah, I had that. Yeah, <laughs> me I too. Left. Way back yeah. in the day. Yeah. So are we ago. are we taking somebody's job if we are responsible human beings and take the cart back to the corral or back into the store? No, they're not going to be laid off because carts get put in the corral because they, they still have to go get them. Mm-hmm. You know, they have to walk five more feet for the yeah. lazy person that didn't return it. Yeah. All right. So I get that's not another call now. We took yeah, care of yeah, two, wait, two and one. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't you worry. You'll come up with something this week. <laughs> Appreciate it, Dave in Vancouver. See, that's why you come to this show. Because you know why? At the end, it's cathartic, and you just go, whew, go to the weekend. I got nothing on my mind now. That's what the weekend's supposed to be about, just getting it all out. The 5 at 5 is coming up top of the hour. Um, there is significant debate about whether or not Dan Lanning or Kyle Whittingham or Jonathan Smith or anybody else needs to be honest about injuries. We'll talk about that. Plus, we're going to look ahead to the NFL weekend. What's the best NFL game of the weekend if you're only going to watch one game? We are headed towards Thanksgiving next week as well. We have big shows on the horizon next week as we approach uh, the game formerly known as the Civil War. Uh, leave it right here. you got the bald-faced truth. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. It's Friday. I'm going to switch up the 5 at 5 here, guys. I'm going to do the 5 at 5. But at the end of it, we're going to do the not 5 at 5. So I want Judah, Stephen, Anna, come up with a story that doesn't belong in the 5 at 5, but is also kind of newsworthy, noteworthy, and interesting to you. But sports-related, right? Eh, it doesn't have to be. Okay. It's the not 5 at 5. Hey, this wouldn't make it, but if we were sitting around spitballing, this is what you would say. Hey, you know what we should put in there? Let's see how that goes. Coming up uh, at about 5.15, 5.18, more exact, Josh Newman, Salt Lake Tribune, will join us. He's really good on Utah football. He seems to know what he's talking about. He's a good writer. He's a good reporter. I like having him on the show. I think he really likes Utah to win this game. And, uh, you know, at 6 o'clock, Peter Sampson in the Pulse right here on 7.50, the game in Portland. Let's do it. The 5 at 5. The 5 at 5. Brought to you by Mercedes-Benz of Wilsonville. See more than 4,000 vehicles at Swickert.com. That's my peeve. (laughs) The Washington Commanders. Man, are they a mess. They disciplined a handful of players today for violating a league rule about drinking on the team plane. The league will take no further action, but the NFL sent a memo to every team today from Roger Goodell reminding him of the rule and saying that any violations would result in significant discipline. 
After the Titans win over the Packers on Thursday night, the offensive coordinator for the Titans, Todd Downing, was arrested for a DUI. Washington quarterback Taylor Heineke was among the players shown on a video with alcohol following Monday night's win at Philadelphia. On the team plane, the players mimicked Minnesota's celebration with quarterback Kirk Cousins by putting chains around their own quarterback's neck, who was shown holding a bush light beer. Tuesday morning, uh, Washington coach Ron Rivera called the league to inform them of his disciplinary plans. He then addressed it in a team meeting. It's uncertain what disciplinary action he took. The commanders apparently did not supply the alcohol. How did it get on the plane? But uh, the memo reminded teams that this is an ongoing policy. No alcohol available at club facilities or while traveling. Just alcohol available at the stadium where they can sell it to sheep. No, they didn't say that, but I said that. That's number one in our five at five. Number two, the United States is tamping uh, down Russia's update on the Brittany Griner front. A potentially promising Russian statement about negotiations to bring Brittany Griner home was met with quick dismissal from the United States Department of State today. Sergei Rybakov, a Russian deputy foreign minister, was quoted by Russian media earlier today as saying there was, quote-unquote, new activity in the talks that could see convicted arms dealer Victor Bout, who's in a United States prison serving 25 years, return to Russia. We haven't found common ground yet, said uh, the Russian deputy foreign minister, but the Americans are showing certain activity and we're working through appropriate channels. Now, the State Department fired back at Russia, says it has not engaged in negotiations, What, no matter what that guy says. So U.S. officials probably caught in the middle of some propaganda here as Russia's trying to rile up some sentiment among Americans that would put some pressure on the State Department to make the deal. All I can think is, with Twitter no longer available or Facebook no longer available to Russian bots, this is what we've come to? Feels like the 1980s all over again. Number three, Saints quarterback Jameis Winston. He is not playing, and he says it hurts his soul to not play. He didn't think he would permanently lose his starting job to Andy Dalton after getting injured earlier this season, but the job appears to be Dalton's for at least another week. Saints coach Dennis Allen said uh, earlier this week he won't be making a switch. It's interesting. I talked to Jay Cornegay, who runs the Westgate Superbook and, you know, he runs the book in six states. He brought up Winston and Dalton as a great example of sometimes a starting quarterback in the NFL goes out and it does nothing to the line. He says Dalton Winston won't move the line at all. Doesn't matter who starts in that game. Feels like the Saints agree with the sports book. They're staying with the guy, giving Dalton some continuity. Meanwhile, Winston trying to put some pressure on the Saints or maybe just trying to let fans know that it does hurt his soul not to play. I'm just glad to know Jameis Winston, who stole those crab legs so long ago, has a soul. Just kidding. Spain has overtaken the United States for the number one spot in the uh, FIBA men's hoop rankings. First time in 12 years that USA basketball is not atop the world's men's rankings. 
They updated their rankings today. Spain slipped a sliver ahead of the U.S. Four-time defending Olympic champion United States were in the top spot since 2010 and have been there 12 straight years. It's not exactly a championship. It probably can't be maintained for too long. But Spain is celebrating this, saying, hey, we're the best basketball team in the world. Spain now leading the U.S. by 1.1 points in the rankings. They, uh, By the way, Spain won the most recent World Cup, plus the Eurobasket title earlier this year. That uh, helps put them in front of the United States. In women's basketball, U.S. still number one by nearly 200 points. Second in the world, China. USA basketball has some work to do. Finally, Dan Lanning, University of Oregon football coach, he's taken some heat for his decision yesterday on this program to not tell us what Bo Nix's injury was. Like, look, let's cut Dan Lanning a break. He's not the only coach in the Pac-12 who's holding things close to the vest. I get it. He doesn't want to give Utah or anybody else, Oregon State presumably next week, an advantage by telling them anything that's going on inside his program. But I learned today that the Pac-12 conference is exploring an injury report system. They said eh, they have had difficulty getting buy-in and getting consensus from the conference's coaches over the years. There's also the matter of student privacy. I kind of call nonsense on the student privacy front because, you know, they tell us a lot about the students. They tell us their names. They tell us they, we, we learn about their majors, their, their ages. We learn about their parents. I mean, all you have to do is look in the media guide. It's not exactly a student privacy issue when it comes to promoting college athletics that's the five at five five biggest things going on and now we give you the not five at five i feel like we should have like a whole nother benchmark that plays but we'll just call it the not five at five guys what's in the not five at five steven what do you got uh, okay, so LeBron James. I don't know if you knew this, but last night, LeBron James in the shop, they did an alternate broadcast on uh, Amazon Prime for Thursday Night Football. And uh, they were talking about Aaron Rodgers being a transcendent star. LeBron James chimes in, and he says, uh, you know, when you got a guy like that, why don't you just surround him with, you know, picks that maximize his talent? And uh, they asked him, well, are you talking about football or basketball? So basically LeBron James mm. calling out the Lakers without calling out the Lakers. Does he not understand there's a salary cap in the NFL that, you know, everybody has the same amount of money to spend? I don't spend? know, but the news is is he wants new players without actually saying he wants new players. It's like, why don't you just call it out? So yeah. the, that's one of the college peeves. You know, if you've got a problem with someone, just call them out. Kind of passive-aggressive there yeah. by Braun. <laughs> not surprising. There it is. Judah, the not five at five. Go. If you're going to any World Cup matches in Qatar uh, next week, uh, you can't yes. buy beer. You can't buy beer. They are banning beer sales at the eight stadiums hosting FIFA World Cup matches that, again, begin next week. Uh, FIFA gave Qatar the World Cup back in 2010. And 12 years and two days before the tournament, they've decided to ban beer sales, despite Budweiser being a, a huge sponsor of theirs. So wow. you can't buy beer in the uh, World Cup stadiums. I got that from the AP Newswire overnight, and I was like, that's interesting. No alcohol in the stadiums. Uh, I, uh, uh, you, how do you think that affects... You know, obviously it's a Muslim country, very conservative, tight regulation on alcohol usage. But, man, that's going to be a, uh, you know, Bud Zero, 
Like, will they be able to sell Bud Zero at the stadium? Like, you know, yes. near beer? He said that Bud Zero sales will not be impacted. <laughs> <laughs> so Budweiser, Budweiser's paying $75 million. That's a lot of money. Now, man. am I wrong? I think, don't they have, like, designated areas that they can drink? Yeah, but not in the stadium. But not in the stadium, right. That's your house. <laughs> not, <laughs> so that, not in Qatar. That's, yeah, designated areas right outside the border that you can drink. That's really interesting. Anno, in the not five at five, what would you recommend? Uh, I didn't realize this had to, any, to do anything with sports. So. doesn't have to at all. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, so mine has to do with Taylor Swift. So the Department of Justice is now interviewing the parent company of Ticketmaster <laughs> because of its highly botched uh, ticket sales of her new concert tour. Apparently, there's been an investigation already that was underway into Live Nation, but this latest drama around all those Swifties who couldn't get their uh, tickets to her concert has really ratcheted up the uh, nature of the investigation. You know, it's really interesting that, you know, I didn't think any of our girls had any interest in going to Taylor Swift, mm -hmm. and I was grateful for that. Yeah. Because, you know, we've been to a Taylor Swift concert in our lifetime. Yeah. No line at We've the men's room, time. by the way, done fellas. Our time. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I figured our oldest, maybe she had aged out of it, mm -hmm. and then the young ones, they don't seem interested in that. You know, they're Yet. interested in other stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, this is going to be really an enjoyable time for me, as other people are <laughs> scrambling trying to make their kids' lives and dreams come true. Um, but then the oldest texted me after everybody was already buying tickets and yeah. the codes were all gone. Like I had no ability to do anything about it and she said me and the cousins and by the way by cousins she's talking about eight other people uh-huh yeah would like to go to taylor swift in seattle yeah and i got on stubhub just to see yeah and the cheapest ticket was like 500 bucks yeah. and i was like no yeah you're not seeing taylor swift anywhere you can see her from right here with binoculars or a telescope have you actually told her no yet or are you going to just give like, it some time figure out Give it some time. I think we should give it some time because with this investigation, there's got to be something. Maybe she'll add a stop in Portland. Maybe. And they'll just be like, it's a free concert. I you like know? how you're the guy, though. You're the ticket oh, guy. Oh, I'm the ticket guy for a lot of hey, people. Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. I get a lot of people who reach out to me and they're like, hey, hey, hey. You know, I'm like that guy outside the stadium. <laughs> hey, I got two. I got two. <laughs> you know, my favorite thing about that guy outside the stadium <laughs> is when I walk by and I'm wearing my media credential. Yeah. They'll look at me and they'll say, is that for sale? I'm like, the credential. yeah, like, A, no, it's not for sale, but B, I wonder what I could sell it for. Like, you know, like, I, I never, you know, I never considered that. And by the way, if you buy it, can they just go write my column for me? You know, what do you got? You got to go in and work. You're welcome to have it, but you'll be there when they're sweeping up the stadium, you idiot. So, uh, you know, there's that, too. Yeah, yeah that Taylor Swift thing's going to be wild. Yeah, it already is. It sounds like Ticketmaster really screwed that up. Well, don't you think they wanted to? Unhappy people. I saw U.S. Senator Ron Wyden tweet about it, and he oh, was really? like, he said they have a monopoly uh -huh. on the tickets. Doesn't it feel like they kind of do? Yeah, they do. Know. Well, they what they've done is they take the ticketing away from the venue, yeah, and they put it in their own hands, and this includes sports events. So they are controlling not only the uh, primary sale of those tickets, they're controlling the secondary market as well. But, like, aren't you, like, as a human, up against computers that are trying to buy the tickets In theory, but I've also heard they, you? they should yeah. have workarounds for that. They yeah. should have, like, you have to, you know, click all the boxes that have a stoplight on it or whatever they make you do in other places yeah. you sign in to prove, to prove you're, you're a human being. 
They should just ask you questions from what's your peeve to prove that you're a human being. <laughs> it's just the whole ticket thing is crazy because if you've ever tried to go on and get tickets for anything that, you know, a handful of other people are interested in going to. Yeah. There's people that are really good at it, and they're like in the 1%. I'm yeah. not in that. I don't know that you are either. But there's people that like understand all the strategies yeah. on how to get those tickets and not try, not have to buy them in the aftermarket for like triple the price and all that. And But the rest of us, you know, the other 99%, we're just kind of left scrambling and trying Leftovers. to, you know, make our kids happy or whoever it is in the household that wants to go, like, without dipping into a college tuition or a 401k. But, you know? the, but the whole thing that Ticketmaster, it, the whole premise of it, it's very simple. It's about creating a demand when there, you know, with Taylor Smith, there is a demand. But sure. even when there's not a demand, let's say, you know, it's Elton John. He's coming for the 14th time. It's his farewell tour in the same way that there's a mattress store going out of business. Yeah. You know, and there, maybe there's not going to be – they're not. They're going to have trouble selling the 300 level. Yeah. What Ticketmaster does is they call it a pre-sale. We're having a pre-sale for Elton John. So they whip up some hype uh -huh. with the people who don't really know. Yeah. And they offer only the 300 level tickets as the first tickets that they sell. Uh -huh. So the, the people who think they're getting in and getting the best available tickets are like, oh, I got in, and all that was there was 300-level tickets. Man, I'm glad I got one. Well, the rest of the tickets go on sale later, and they use their credit card partner, like maybe mm -hmm. it's Visa or American Express, and they say, hey, if you have an American Express card, you get a free code. Now you can buy a floor-level ticket because you're an American Express customer. Mm -hmm. They sell that to American Express and Visa as mm -hmm. a you know, premium membership offering. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of scams that go yeah. on. Not that I know anything about it, but well, you, you know. actually seem to know quite a bit about it. I don't it. like corruption. Okay. Well, that's the thing is like I don't mind paying you know a fair market value and supporting an yeah. artist or whatever it is that you know we enjoy. Right. It's just when you feel like you're just really being ripped off, like in whatever secondary market. I don't know. That's where it gets real kind of shady and hinky to me. But yep. So uh, there's that. Um, okay. Let's let's go to the break because we got Josh Newman Salt Lake Tribune coming up. He wants to talk about Utah football. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. You know what? I feel pretty good. I feel pretty healthy. I've had knee problems over the years. I feel good right now. I could run right now. I, I you know if I had to go, I could start. I have no problem saying that. It's not a competitive disadvantage for me. Josh Newman, Salt Lake Tribune, joining us. Utah's in town, so Newman's in town. How are you, man? John, how are we? Doing well. I'm excited about this game. I'm really, really curious to see uh, how this goes for Oregon, who plays at quarterback. Uh, what are you looking forward to with this Utah-Oregon game? And by the way, you're in Oregon. What are your initial impressions this evening? Uh, it is a chilly evening here in, in downtown Portland, but look, I'm, this, this isn't my first rodeo, right? We have the hoodie, we have the light puff jacket, we got the winter hat, we're in downtown Portland, we're going to find some dinner, and we're ready to deal with the elements, but I, I like digress. I, um, yeah, this, give me a, hold on though, hold on, Salt Lake City guy, you're supposed to be here, and you're supposed to go, oh, this is balmy, this is mild, this is like the fall for us. You're, it, you're actually impressed with the, uh, the level of chill here. Oh, I'm soft. John, I grew up in the Northeast with Northeast winters, uh, New York, New Jersey. I went to school in Massachusetts. I hate winter. I don't like being cold, but I know how to prepare for it. So credit to me for that, at least. Credit to you. 
All right. Give us an idea. Uh, what are you expecting in this game tomorrow night, Autzen Stadium, 7.30 kickoff? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm entirely sure what to expect. Like, this is what I know. Utah has done a very nice job of circling the wagons since the loss to UCLA on October 8th. Um, you know, they beat USC at the end. They survived at Washington State without Cam Rising. Uh, they smashed Arizona. They smashed Stanford. And all of these things have come with injury and personnel issues. Uh, Cam Rising has had um, a knee for most of the last three weeks. He is not healthy. He is not 100%, but he is playing. He is well enough to play. He will play tomorrow night. Uh, Dalton Kincaid has had a shoulder issue. Uh, he, he sat out at um, – Sorry, he sat the Arizona State game, came back versus Stanford, was a, 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 li a little limited, but he's well enough to play. Uh, Van Fillinger, their only true edge rusher, he's out for the year. Uh, Tavion Thomas has had you know some personal issues that uh, that he's been dealing with, but he came back last week against Stanford. Did you know had the full complement right? Twenty-two carries, one eighty-two touchdowns. In spite of all these issues that I just rattled off, this Utah team it feels like they are peaking at the right time. They they are playing very well. They are playing at a high level, and, again, they're doing it in spite of these issues. Um, this tomorrow night just it feels like something significant. Win or lose, this is like a big game late November. If they want to go back to the Rose Bowl, like they should probably go ahead and win this game and not worry about tiebreakers. If they win out, they're going back to Vegas. So from a Utah perspective, um, it feels like the Utes – believe that they are playing for everything tomorrow night let's go back to rising for a minute because there's been so much focus on bo Nix that i almost forgot that rising had been banged up how close to 100 percent do you think he is you've seen him play a little bit uh not close and i'm saying that because um the the offense under andy ludwig's direction andy and kyle uh, excuse me, Andy and Kyle Whittingham have said uh, numerous times this season that they are comfortable with rising, running the ball between 8 and 12 times a game. Now, when I say running the ball, that means either by design or with him, you know, scrambling out of the pocket, tucking it, and going. They have not, at least, I don't believe that they have called a designed run in either of the last two weeks. And the week before that, he was out against Washington State. So they are not calling these design runs, and that alone leads me to believe that Rising is not 100%. And I'm not sure that he's I'm not sure he's very close to 100 to 100%. Um, but again, he he is well enough to play. Uh, the last two weeks, he started off very shaky, which Rising does not do. Rising is usually you know very in control, very smart, making good decisions. He has not looked good at the start of either of the last two games. But credit to him, you know, he calmed down, he got it together, and he's been solid. Now, the thing working in Utah's advantage is, even if Rising is shaky or doesn't look like himself, that's kind of okay because what we've seen now is this offensive line under Jim Harding, the offensive line coach, the offensive line has really been playing at a high level for the last month. So if the offensive line is playing at a high level, and you're getting something real out of Tavion Thomas like he gave them against Stanford, it's okay if Rising is not at 100% because you have other elements that you can lean on. Bo Nix playing for Oregon, not playing for Oregon. 
you know, everybody's looking at it as a big factor. I am, uh, I, I am uh, in that camp pretty much, but I still think Oregon can run the football. Defensively, how has Utah played? I last saw them in person uh, for the, the USC game, and I thought, gosh, defensively, not like the 2021 team. No, no, you're right. For for a long stretch, they you know they were not like the 21 team, and they haven't been like the 21 team pretty much at all. But I mean, he, here's where we are. They gave up 500 plus total yards at UCLA, and then the week after that, they gave up 500 plus against USC. But in the second half of that USC game, I think they tried to simplify things. I thought that Morgan Scally made some timely blitz calls. He's bringing his linebackers like right up the you know right up the alley to get to the quarterback, uh, um, a zero blitz here and there. Something something changed in the second half of the USC game. And since then, they've been good. They have not been great, but they've been very good. They've been markedly better than they were early in the season when they were giving up a ton of yards and a ton of big plays. You know, look, the opener at Florida, we all point to, you know, the rising interception in the end zone at the end, but there were a lot of, you know, broken plays and Anthony Richardson scrambling for a 45-yard touchdown and all kinds of things went on defensively in that game. Those things have been cleaned up. And I think a lot of this is a credit to Morgan Scally. Again, Van Fillinger is out for the year. You really don't have a true pass rush. And he's, you know, he's, he's trying to simplify things. Again, he is calling timely blitzes. He is getting linebackers involved. Clark Phillips is playing at an All-American type of level. Um, you've got a couple of true freshmen, true sophomores who, who hadn't seen a, a ton of time in the defensive backfield playing, playing big, big roles now. Guys who uh, have come along here in, in the last year, two, three years playing big roles. So is this the 21 defense? Certainly not. But they are playing at a, um, how do I put this? They are playing not at a super high level, but certainly at a high enough level where you believe that they can go win a ball game. Josh Newman, Salt Lake Tribune is with us. Uh, look, you've you had a hell of a season yourself. I think, you know, Utah, all these teams, they've been uh, fun to watch. They're compelling. Um, are you having fun on this beat, or where, are you on fumes at this point of the year? You're heading into Thanksgiving next week. you got a baby that's uh, fairly new and fairly young at home. How's Newman doing? What's the household like? The household's good. I mean, you know, we're getting by. Uh, the baby's great. You know, nine months old now. It's been a lot of fun. But yeah, from a you know from a personal standpoint, it is taxing. Um, I remember talking to a friend back east in journalism during the off season, and we were talking about you know the Utah team went to the Rose Bowl last year, but that season was kind of you know marred by tragedy, right, with Aaron Lowe's death uh, and Ty Jordan's death uh, nine months earlier. And my friend asked me, he's like, if you could pick what would happen in 2022, what would you do? Would you rather cover another Rose Bowl team? with the same type of circus atmosphere that followed that group? Or would you rather cover like a benign, nothing, seven and five, eight and four, and, you know, cover a mid-December bowl game and call it a day? And I thought about that for a long time. I don't, I, I don't know, John, like this is a lot of fun. And, you know, Utah is nationally relevant. And if you're covering a nationally relevant program, that means more people are reading my stuff, which is, obviously a huge part of the point, but something about like an eight and four season and, you know, let's go play in the Vegas bowl is, <laughs> is, is sort of appealing sometimes. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. 
Josh, uh, you know, Kyle Whittingham came on the show. He said, we play it as close to the vest as anyone. Uh, he said, we don't like to share our injuries. Oregon's Dan Lanning came on, said, you know, why would I do that? It's a competitive advantage. Uh, you know, where do you stand on, you know, the possibility that the Pac-12, you know, they say they can't get consensus among coaches. I got three for three this week who said, hey, I would do it if everyone else did it. <laughs> do you think the coaches ever would agree, or would you always have an outlier or two, Chip Kelly, who would, you know, push the envelope and go, hey, you know what, I'm not sharing any information. What's the point of that? I think there's certainly, you know, in the future, hypothetically, yeah, I think there would certainly be um, an outlier or two or three or four, um, you know, specifically in a Pac-12. I mean, you know, Kyle is interesting. Kyle Whittingham will tell you that, you know, we don't talk about injuries unless they are season-ending, which is, you know, which is partially true, right? He will come into his Monday press conference, and if there is a season-ending injury, uh, he will announce it. But if it is something like a sprained ankle or something like rising with the knee, um, it's interesting, right? He doesn't talk about injuries until he decides to talk about injuries. So somebody like me, I will walk in there and I will start asking about injuries. And Kyle will not give you the whole thing, but more times than not, he will like lead you down the path. Mm. And if you kind of read between the lines and you look at him and you read the body language, more times than not, he will lead you in the right direction. So that's, that's good. I, you, know, yeah. you know, from my standpoint, that's been fine. That's been good. Uh, more to your point, um, you know, from a Utah perspective, I mean, he's, he's, he's not in the business of, of giving competitive advantages, but he is a guy that I think, again, if there's a consensus or if the Pac-12 came up with something or if the NCAA started mandating it, he would get on board just like anything else. He, he's not one to complain, at least publicly. Um, if we ever got to the point of an injury report, I think Kyle would get on board and, 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 and not really complain too much about it. Bo Nix, your sense from there. Uh, Kyle said he expected Bo Nix. They're planning for Bo Nix, but I don't know if that's like, you know, I'm planning for to play until they call the rain out. You know what I mean? Uh, where do, The sentiment uh, in Utah and Salt Lake City, how much do you think it matters to the Utes if Bo Nix plays or not? I think that matters a ton because, I mean, you know, Dan Lanning and Kenny Dillingham have gotten, you know, the very best of Bo Nix after Nix had a pretty, you know, hot, cold, up-down, Jekyll and Hyde career at Auburn. So if Bo Nix plays, it's a it's an entirely different element to this football game versus if, you know, Ty Thompson uh, or Jay Butterfield plays. You know, Kyle saying that he's preparing for Bo Nix. Well, yeah, of course he's preparing for Bo Nix. I, I remember last year when, uh, when UCLA traveled to Utah, uh, Dorian Thompson-Robinson was hurt the week before against Oregon. And there was a lot of questions about whether or not DTR would play. So we walked in there on Monday morning and we asked Kyle about, you know, preparing for Dorian Thompson Robinson, preparing for Ethan Garbers. And Kyle was super adamant that, you know, Dorian Thompson Robinson is a tough kid and we're expecting him to be playing. Why wouldn't he play, et cetera. And then Ethan Garbers started. So, you know, it's all gamesmanship. It's all, you know, trying to, trying to stretch it a little bit if you're Kyle talking to the media. Um, look, of course you're preparing for Bo Nix to play, but look, this isn't his first rodeo. This isn't Morgan Scally's first rodeo. You're going to have, you know, plan A is to be dealing with Nix. And then, yeah, plan B is, is is potentially dealing with Ty Thompson or maybe even some combination of the two. Who knows? Who do you like in the game? I, I uh, am reluctantly picking Oregon. 
I just think uh, it'll be, uh, you know, if Oregon, if Bo Nix plays, I think Oregon will be all right at home. If he doesn't play, I got to think a week spent of preparation and a good run game and maybe a better defensive effort gets Oregon in this game. I don't feel great about my pick is what I'm saying. Uh, how do you see it, Josh? Yeah, I don't feel great about my pick either. I've been, you know, I went back and forth a few times. I keep coming back to, you know, again, Utah, at least from from what I can tell, it feels like Utah thinks that they are playing for everything. And this is why some of these guys came back, right? Tavion Thomas came back for one more run. Dalton Kincaid for one more run. Brant Keithy, before he was injured and lost for the season, specifically wanted one more run with these guys. They believe they're playing for everything. And they are peaking at the right time. They have been playing well for the last month. Austin Stadium, not an easy place to play. Obviously, Oregon had won 23 straight before Washington um, you know, beat them in Eugene. I just keep coming back to Utah really has this belief that they're going to walk in there and win. Uh, Utah 34-31 tomorrow night. Ooh, big game. Uh, I will see you in the press box. You stay warm here in Portland. It gets chilly, but I appreciate you jumping on with us. I encourage people to follow at Joshua underscore Newman on Twitter and read him in the Salt Lake Tribune. Newman, thank you. See you tomorrow, John. Thanks. All right. See you there. There he is. It feels like Utah thinks they are playing for everything. They believe they are playing for everything. Wow. Uh, keep an eye on that. And if that's the mindset, what is Oregon playing for? 503-417-7575. Are the Ducks playing for everything as well? Do you have that feeling? I'm not sure they are, but we're going to find out on Saturday night. Coming up, we'll tell you what you should be watching this weekend. Biggest games in the NFL. We'll talk a little bit more about the Ducks and the Utes. Oregon State with a huge game at Arizona State. All of that on the horizon. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, what games are we looking forward to this weekend? We will uh, we'll, uh, take you through what's on tap a little bit later in the show. But, guys, let's turn our attention quickly to, uh, you know, the, the Pac-12 games uh, and the NFL games. Um, if you have to pick one Pac-12 game to watch this weekend and you have to pick one NFL game to watch this weekend, what are we watching? I'll go first. Um, look, I'm going to go through the Pac-12 games just to tell you what I think. I think Washington State, Arizona is really compelling. It's the early game. You got Jaden Delora saying it's personal. You have Washington State. How will they react? That's compelling, but it's not the biggest game of the weekend because Washington State's not playing for anything. They're already bowl eligible. Arizona's still two wins away from bowl eligibility, so that one doesn't have me captivated. Oregon State's at Arizona State. I'm really into this game especially because I know Oregon State's a little banged up. I think at least one starter for Oregon State, maybe two on defense, will not play. Keep an eye on that game. It could be closer than people expect. Uh, Beavers are giving away seven and a half points in that game. I think it might be closer than that, but it's still not the most compelling game of the weekend uh, because I think you know I think Oregon State is likely bound for the Sun Bowl. I don't think I don't know if that game's going to play a huge role 
in where they end up unless they win it and then they beat Oregon in the finale, then all of a sudden they're in a better position. So maybe they do play for something. I don't know. Stanford and Cal, big game, two bad teams. Uh, I think Cal wins it, but I, uh, I'm not way into that game. USC-UCLA, really interesting. It's the, uh, I think, the second-best game of the, of the day, Saturday, 5 o'clock on Fox. I'll be tuned into that game. I think UCLA is going to beat USC and win the game outright, but uh, really compelling. Set, but the most important Pac-12 game is the Utah at, at Autzen Stadium game. You just heard Josh Newman talk about what the game means for, for Utah. I'm curious what it means for Oregon. Like, I tweeted that out, and I half wonder, will Dan Lanning see the tweet? Will his players see the tweet? Will they know that Utah has been gaming their season for this moment? Will they show up to play? So it's Oregon, it's Utah, and and it's not that I don't care whether Bo Nix plays or not, but I think it's a huge advantage. It's a very different game for Ty Thompson to have all the reps all week long if Bo Nix is not going to go versus Ty Thompson getting thrown in late in the fourth quarter to the final series where he is being called upon to get a first down on fourth and one from his own 34. Way different. It's the difference between maybe a guy getting an opportunity to take batting practice, get into the lineup and play regularly versus getting pulled off the bench in a cold situation to face the closer. Like, I just think it's a very unfair position for Ty Thompson to be in. So I think with, you know, let's just say Ty Thompson is the starter. I think Oregon will be better because he's had a week to prepare. They'll be better because they've had a week to game plan. And I'm wondering, I'm kind of curious if Kenny Dillingham, who's been wildly successful with Bo Nix, can MacGyver it a little bit. Let's see what you got, Dilly. Guys, which Pac-12 game appeals to you? Yeah, I think you're right on with that. Uh, with Oregon, by the way, with Kenny Dillingham, like, we want to see what Dane Lanning can do with the defense. The offense still has little questions they can need to be answered, so see, uh, see what he could do. Uh, the game I really want to see uh, is the USC-UCLA game. You know, Just the optics of that being at the Rose Bowl, uh, both teams wearing their road jerseys, the blue and the red. I think it's just great. It's a great-looking game. Uh, I'm really fascinated to see if USC can pull off that win because I'm with you, John. I thought they would have had a couple losses by now, and they haven't. They only have the one against Utah. I think UCLA gets the win. But at the same time, if you want a Pac-12 team to get to the college football playoff, it's USC. And no, nobody really wants that. So uh, I'm fascinated with that game. But I also think the sneaky one, like you said earlier, Arizona-Washington State. A lot of hate with Jane Delora going to play Washington State. If Arizona, they're 4-6, and six, they got Washington State, Arizona State, they can get bowl, bowl eligibility. It's a big game for them. Yeah, I love that one. That's going to be fun. USC-UCLA is, to me, the, the one I'm looking forward to watching the most. I think Utah-Oregon might be a better game, but it gets the 7.30 ESPN treatment. And as a TV viewer for a TV product, that's kind of a bummer. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's buried too far deep for the quality of game that it's going to be. So that's unfortunate. But I like Trojans-Bruins, 5 o'clock Fox, Gus, Joel Klatt, Jenny Taft. It'll be fun. Yeah, there you go. There's your weekend. So if you have stuff you need to get done, get it done in the morning. Tune into the Beaver game midday. Check out USC-UCLA, the battle for L.A. at 5 o'clock, and then settle in in the evening for Utah and Oregon. All right, What's on Tap is coming up. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game.
Peter Sampson in the Pulse coming up here in Portland uh, on 7.50 the game, top of the hour. Peter, what are you going to talk about on the Pulse? Come Man, on. I've got so much to get through. I don't know how I'm going to do it in an hour. Of course, recap in Trailblazers Nets. I saw a few troubling things, and I want a petition to get Shaden Sharp some more time. Of course, i got to talk Oregon-Utah. That's the big story here. And uh, I have a kind of a unique perspective with the uh, the trouble that Ticketmaster is in. That whole thing is a racket. It's bigger than people realize, and I want to break that down. Interesting. Uh, we'll take a look at that. I told you guys, and I don't want to be right about this, but I thought uh, that their last uh, day in first place would come this weekend. They're just a half game in front now. Are they going to get past? What's going to happen here? That loss, that hurt them. It's a must win against Utah for sure to stay in that first place spot. I gave them a couple games after you, so uh, I hope I hope they win, hope they beat Utah, and then lose on the road. So I'm right. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I'm swinging. St- I'm still a believer. I'm giving. What did I say? Ten more days. Yeah. Oh, so, so you that's said they're going days. all the way. I thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Eight, eight, eighty and four, or whatever it is. You know it. <laughs> all right, uh, let's play. What's on tap? We got a big weekend ahead in the NFL. Big weekend ahead in college football. What do you need to be paying attention to? We have you covered. Now. It's time for What's on Tap and What's on TV at the Independent on the BFT. Well, let's start with the Pac-12 games. If you are a Pac-12 fan, it's going to start early for you this week. And uh, the weekend is heating up. 11 a.m. Pacific time. Washington State, Arizona, that big revenge game's on the Pac-12 networks. 11.15 on Saturday morning, tomorrow morning, Oregon State will be playing Arizona State on ESPN2. Stanford and Cal in the big game. It's a sellout in Berkeley. Stanford and Cal will kick off at 2.30 on the Pac-12 networks. USC-UCLA, 5 o'clock on Fox. Colorado at Washington, 6 o'clock on the Pac-12 networks. And Utah and Oregon at 7.30 on ESPN. If you are waiting to find out uh, what... Uh, uh, is going to happen for next week's game between Oregon and Oregon State. It basically comes down to this. If the Ducks beat Utah, I believe it'll be 12.30 on ABC. If they lose to Utah, I believe it'll be 7 or 7.30 on ESPN. So I think it's going to be that simple. I think it'll be decided on you know, whether or not the Ducks can, uh, you know, I don't think ABC is going to be interested in a Oregon Ducks team that's on a two-game losing streak. So I think they're going to have to beat Utah in order to get that early game. So keep an eye on that uh, as you go forward. In the NFL over the weekend, um, look, I'm just going to pick a a game that I think is compelling and interesting and talk a little bit about it. Uh, I am always interested to see the Eagles. They'll be on CBS at 10 a.m. on Sunday. Eagles at Colts. Can the Colts win for the second time under Jeff Saturday? And what are the Eagles going to do coming off of their first loss of the season? Keep an eye on that one. Also, uh, big implications, Monday night football. Super Niners are playing against the Cardinals in a game that feels like it matters. That one will be on ESPN, Monday night, 515. There's your weekend coming up. Uh, What are you guys going to do this weekend? Anything non-sports related? Anything going on? Like... Give me an idea. What do you do your weekend, Stephen? Ooh, uh, I don't know that I have any plans this weekend. I know I'm going to record my podcast, and that's about it right now. Uh, the kids are spending the night at the grandparents today because uh, the wife is, uh, well, it, unfortunately, I don't get to hang out with my wife. She's going to oh. uh, she's going to a football game, high school football game. Oh. Uh, I, I think Central Catholic might be playing. I don't know. That's oh, what she teaches. she's a teacher. Yeah, she's a teacher at Central Catholic, so uh, she wants to go support those kids. 
Uh, I watch football games. Yeah, so she'll be doing that, and I guess I'll just be sitting at home uh, with my shoes off. It'll be feel great. <laughs> Good man, I love it. I no, like that. No. I like that. The like the thing that you think about is your shoes being off. I mean, <laughs> is that just me? But like when I take my shoes off, like that's what I know. Like the day is over. Like I feel like I, I start getting tired at that point. These dogs are barking. Yeah, like like as soon as the shoes come off, it's like all right, I can relax. The funny thing for me is like people. I I used to get mad when people would be like on Monday they'd be like, "What did you do this weekend?" Like they've done something relaxing and they're waiting for me to tell them like you know. You know, I did nothing. I did, but but the weekend becomes kind of busy for me. It becomes you know work for me at least on Saturday. But on Sunday, um, we're uh, we've been talking about getting this dog. We're getting this puppy on Sunday. Oh, so the girls are all buzzing about this puppy that is coming to the house. Uh, we have two very small dogs that are older that are kind of, you know, they kind of just sit around and do nothing. They're just old and. Uh, so we're getting this puppy, and I'm a little bit interested to see the dynamic between the two little dogs and this puppy come Sunday. So I I, uh, I wrote a little note. Uh, the girls were at school uh, that I claimed was from the dogs to them, and I left <laughs> it on the floor. And I said, uh, you know, we understand you're getting a new puppy. Uh, we uh, are going on strike. And I left it there, and the girls came, and they said, we know you wrote this. And I said, no, I didn't write it. And I said, uh, and what do they mean by going on strike? What are they going to do? Just sit around more? Like, because they don't do anything anyway. But uh, I don't know if anybody's had a puppy recently. We're about to go through that. I think Anna's super nervous about it because she's like, eh, it's going to be chewing on things. But, you know, we've got six year eight, six-year-old and eight-year-old uh, that uh, are going to be in charge of this dog. So we'll find out come Monday what uh, drama has and un, unfoiled on Sunday. That's exciting. I'm sure the kids are stoked. What kind of, what kind of puppy is it? It's a sheep doodle. So it's half sheep dog, think sheep dog, and half poodle. And the dog looks kind of like a panda bear yeah. to me. It's kind of black and white like a panda bear. And uh you know, the the kids, we 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 did this thing where we weren't going to get one and then we went and looked at them kind of thing. And their friends getting one, and then we were like, okay, you know, yeah, we're suckers. So uh, we're getting this dog. It's against our better judgment. Anna and I have mixed feelings about it. But, um, you know, part of it, too, was I grew up with a lot of animals. Like, we grew up a little rural. I am, you know, the dogs we have are like 12 and 14. And I am a little bit looking at their ages and thinking about the girls, thinking, you know, they need to have a dog that was their dog. Because the older dogs weren't their dog. Like, you know, those dogs were here and old when they arrived. So it was like, uh, you know, I'm, I, I am lamenting, though. That, you know, what, what will that be like for, like, our two, our two dogs that think they've got it made? They have no idea what's coming on Sunday. No, not even. Like, we just got a kitten uh, four weeks ago, and we have an older cat. He's 15, and he hates it like these dogs are in for a very rude awakening i think it's gonna be kind of funny but i i think i'll pay special attention to the older dogs because i you know my my sense is that the attention will be on the puppy all right peter sampson's going to take over here in portland on 750 the game if you're listening uh across the network i appreciate that you are here you're part of the show grab a podcast we had great guests today john robinson former usc coach was fantastic in hour one joe starkey legendary Cal broadcaster. The band is on the field. It is Joe Starkey Day in Berkeley tomorrow. Uh, Cal Stanford is a sellout 
in Berkeley because of Joe Starkey Day. A lot of emotion around the Bears. Keep an eye on that one if you're a Cal fan. Uh, and grab that podcast if you're interested in it. The Bald Face Truth is not here for a long time. Just a good time. Leave it here for Peter Sampson and the Pulse.